0: The OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to the program. It's Friday, March the 31st. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and Fonz King is back in the producer's chair today. You'll be speaking with Fonz when you give us a shout on this Come On With It edition of Open Line. So, if you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial 709 273 or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. You just heard Brian mention that the weather phenomenon that's lurking over the metro region today is the icy fog, the freezing fog. It was certainly there for my commute. It was ground fog. You could not see the front of the vehicle. It was so dense on the other road this morning. So yesterday was pretty nice. Got a fair bit of snow melting yesterday afternoon, which is a very welcome sight. But because of the lingering snow and the heights of the snow banks and the need for more and more ice removal and snow removal, the City of Mount Pearl has extended their parking bans, usually over by the end of March, extending it all the way to the 18th of April. Also, the ban remains in the City of St. John's, so park yourself accordingly. And sticking with the ice, looking forward to the Men's World Curling Championships, to be honest with you. So Team Guju, Guju making his fourth appearance at the Worlds. Of course, he won uh, in Edmonton in 2017, looking to get another title here in Ottawa. So the hometown ice and the hometown crowd, hopefully, can push him over the top. And, of course, the world beater is Nicholas Adin from Sweden, looking for his seventh title. But good luck to Guju, Nichols, EJ Herndon, and Jeff Walker coming off their fifth briar and off to the Worlds beginning tomorrow. Looking forward to that. All right. righty, yesterday, I think Brian mentioned this as well, it was opening day in baseball. The boys of summer are back at it. The Toronto Blue Jays, I would think most baseball fans in this province cheer for the Jays. They haven't won a World Series since they went back-to-back in 92 and 93, but they're amongst the, uh, the odds-on favorites to win this edition of the World Series this year. They have an extremely thick ball club, got off to a, a good start yesterday, beat the Cardinals 10-9, scored a couple in the ninth, got off to a quick start, as a matter of fact, scored three in the first inning. They've got it all. They've got the hitting, they got the defense, they got the pitching. You want to talk a little baseball? Let's go. Inside the betting faves, uh, they're talking about the Houston Astros to repeat. There hasn't been a repeat World Series champion since the Yankees beat the Mets in the Subway Series back in 2000. So 25 years later, we haven't had back-to-back World Series champions. But so between the Astros and the Padres and the Guardians and the Blue Jays, they're amongst the league favorites to win it. And you heard me mention the number to dial in the Metro region, beginning with 709. That's coming to be mandatory tomorrow. It already kicked in apparently for many people trying to make a local call yesterday. All the way up until the end of May, if you don't add 709, you'll get a recording reminding you you have to do that. And Of course, this was all by a ruling made by the CRTC, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, all to make space for 988, which is coming very shortly, we hope, and of course that's for uh, suicide prevention, and I think that's a pragmatic move in the right direction. Let's talk about it. Okay. Let's talk about housing. I think there was encouraging announcements made here in this province uh, a couple of days ago. The second batch of affordable housing announcements and money. So it was 70 million dollars to build an additional 850 affordable rental units. That's on top of the 750 that were already announced. We're not really sure what the status is of construction for the first 750, but that's a good one. People are pointing to the fact that there wasn't really much in the federal budget regarding housing. Now something that's coming to pass tomorrow, we believe it's supposed to be officially launched tomorrow, is the first home savings account. acts very much like a tax-free savings account. So it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? For those of us who are homeowners, an increase in price increases my equity, and consequently, maybe some money down the line in my retirement years if I choose to downsize or move out of my own home. But for younger Canadians trying to get into a home, it's proven to be extremely difficult. But there's a huge difference between different real estate markets. Like the average price of a detached home in Vancouver is $2 million very much different than what the market would look like in Atlanta, Canada. But in the home, the first home buyer savings account, so you're going to be eligible to save up to $40,000 towards a home purchase. And of course, withdrawals will be tax-free. So that's helpful, but it doesn't really do much with the overall price. So what do governments actually do about it? You know, in some of the markets like Vancouver, once again, the restriction on foreign ownership, I think, will help because the big pocket uh, money from parts of Asia, Pan-Pacific, they are come in, bought up a lot of houses, used them as investment vehicles, and consequently that's driven the market really quite high because they'd outbid everyone, and you know what happens there. Your home is worth exactly what someone's willing to pay for it. But I'm still at a bit of a loss as to what governments can do to control the price of a house. If you have some thoughts on the matter, we're absolutely happy to talk about housing because whether it be the first-time buyer, whether it be folks sitting on some equity in their home and considering downsizing whether it be the availability of skilled tradespeople, the rising mortgage rates, so there's an awful lot on that table, oh, including senior-specific affordable rental units. And let's get into some seniors-related matters. You know, we have, and I think it's our responsibility to talk about some of the scams that are floating around. I don't think this particular one has made its way to this province as of yet, but it's happening in Ontario, and eventually likely to rear its ugly head here. People are going door-to-door, and offering you some uh, refunds if you get involved, like, for instance, buying an HVAC system. So what basically happens here, not to get too complicated with it, it's a pretty elaborate scam. So what they do is they come back and they tell you that you're eligible to receive money if you buy some additional equipment or renovations on the home or install an HVAC system. But basically all that happens is they put some money in your bank account, come back to and ask you to write the checks for the equipment, and lo and behold, for many seniors, unbeknownst to them, they've actually rolled up their liens into a mortgage, and it becomes a one-year mortgage at 25%, and it doesn't kick until a year later. And so all of a sudden, these seniors, they find themselves in a position to very likely or quite possibly to lose their home. So every single time that something sounds too good to be true, it generally speaking is. So this mortgage scam is devastating. And of course, it can be easily sold, because if you think that you can increase the equity and the value of your home, and to get some refunds because of one government plan or another, they're not going to come knocking at your door. The feds don't come knocking, unless it's with a warrant, so they don't come knocking to try to sell you an HVAC system because what happened? They rolled it into a mortgage. And it just it, you don't even know what's happening until it's a year later. And in this province, we're hearing from the seniors advocate Susan Walsh. Maybe Fonce, actually, I should have asked you this prior to the show. Let's see if Ms. Walsh is available today. Her and her, and her group have gone out and they've polled Uh, a ton of seniors, close to 1,000 seniors, asking about where their concerns lie and they're obvious ones. Number one is access to primary care and number two is finances. So whether it be housing related or otherwise you know some people think that once you reach the age of 65 and your provincial and federal benefits kick in you're going to be okay. We know that's not true. You know there's long been a call for some of these benefits for seniors to be indexed to inflation and because that's not happening, if you are a senior struggling in 2019 and we've seen what inflation has meant to all of us, but you're on a fixed income, and your benefits package has not been indexed to inflation. For instance, the 5% increase to a senior's benefit has translated to about $72 a year. I mean, how does that really make any sort of appreciable impact on seniors to be able to pay their bills and to eat properly and to fill their prescriptions? So Susan Walsh, hopefully she can come on and talk about what they learned throughout that particular gap, what they call alarming gaps in the system, and yesterday the province did announce, and this is preparation work for what we think is coming down the pike, regarding the numbers of people in the province living with dementia. There's approximately 10,000 people in the province at this very moment living with dementia. The forecast is really quite dire, another 4,000 by 2035. On the federal front, this is some of the work that's been done by Dementia Canada. They say by the year 2050, more than 1.7 million Canadians are expected to be living with dementia. That's an average of 685 individuals being diagnosed each day. So ultimately, that translates into an estimated 6.3 million Canadians diagnosed, living with, and eventually dying of dementia over the next 30 years. So making the plan and getting it in place now, this is a three-year plan. It's got 36 steps involved in it all makes sense to me. And here's some four key areas that they were talking about. Increasing awareness, reducing the risk of, and addressing the stigma of dementia. Those societal conversations are absolutely important, but whether it be the training afforded to home care workers or long-term care employees to be able to properly deal with and treat and help people living with dementia is going to be massive. Number two, improving the diagnosis and the coordination of dementia care bettering supports and services for people living with dementia along with their caretakers and families, improving the workforce training so staff are knowledgeable about dementia and can provide passionate, compassionate care. We all have heard the stories, and they're really quite upsetting, about on some of the dementia wards where residents have been attacked and in some cases badly beaten. So whether we factor in some of the other numbers that we have talked about, and this is in the review of long-term care and personal care homes, We've got to throw them out there once again because I've never heard anyone try to break down and give us an answer as to why the numbers are what they are. The residents of long-term care facilities in this province living in restraint is 14.2%. The Canadian average is 6.5%. Then you move off to antipsychotic drug use in long-term care. In this province, it's 38.3% of residents are taking antipsychotic drugs. Some of them haven't even been prescribed antipsychotic drugs. The national average is 21.9%. Inside this dementia plan as well, they're going to deal with the curriculum in the K-12 system to talk about dementia. You know, sometimes there will be arguments or debates about what is age-appropriate for one conversation or another. And these would be very difficult conversations, but some of the children, the students in K-12, may indeed have someone in their family, their nan, their pop, maybe their mom or dad, being diagnosed with and living with dementia. So just being honest about what's happening in the world is not about making people fearful. It's about making people informed. And consequently, the information can make you more compassionate and understanding, and realize what's happening with either your family or your buddy's family. So that's going to be another uh, focus area which makes sense. And Of course, the tag on this, the cover page says, the Dementia Care Action Plan 2326. It's good, but it's just a starting point. You know, can you carefully and properly come up with a long-term strategy over this first three years of investment? It was itemized in the budget, $3.5 million Mm -hmm. annually to fund the plan. And there's a bunch of short, medium, and long-term goals, but if you want to take it on this morning, big conversation, especially if you are a caregiver, a family member of someone with dementia, whether they be at home or in a long-term care facility, let's talk about it. And, you know, on that front, we also heard Susan Walsh say not long ago, she had come back from meetings in Ottawa, and there was some rumbling, some talk about creating an aging-in-place tax credit. All of these steps are going to make it a bit easier to understand what's happening, and how we appropriately treat, deal, help dementia patients and their families. All right, so sticking with healthcare for a second. So I guess we're possibly going to get a look at the final report regarding the cyber attack on our Meditech system. Some 58,000 employees and/or patients have had their information compromised. Now credit monitoring has been offered. We still really don't know much about it. We know who did it. Apparently, we have no idea about ransom and whatnot. And the Privacy Commissioner. Michael Harvey recused himself. I think he was unfairly tagged as having a potential for inherent bias. But anyway, we're hoping we get that report, and we're also hoping that that report is disclosed to the public. You know, I'm not so sure how many of us know the ins and the outs of the software systems and protections that could be in place. I think the most important part of this may indeed be not only the red flags, who knew what, when, and maybe some of the work that was not done to protect the vulnerabilities, and what has been done since. Have we shorted up to the point where we can have a little bit more comfort in that our information is protected as best possible? Now we know the hackers are relentless, and they're they're really quite clever. They've hacked some major corporations and into some utility companies in the United States. There was a minor breach at the Pentagon, and so if they can get in there, they can get in anywhere. anywhere, But we need to know what's happening. Sticking with some software-related matters, uh, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro continues their tests on the Labrador Island link today. They began yesterday with a calibration test. and That's the same testing that happens today. There was no interruption that I know of yesterday. Following the calibration will be the real key. Is they're going to try again to flow 700 megawatts over the Labrador Island Lake? Last time they did it, of course, it tripped the system. Power was restored quite quickly. But, you know, that's kind of offered as the good news is that will restore the power quickly. The real news is that it doesn't work or it hasn't up until this point. Hydro talks in quite optimistic terms, but until we see it and understand that it can work and can be reliable, and if the testing is unsuccessful, this go around, we're going to have to wait all the way till next winter, where the temperatures and the load uh, offer a reasonable way to test the system. Okay, let's keep going. How are we doing out there, Fons? So we do know now what the total allowable catch will be for the 2023 snow crab fishery. So an 8.4% increase. Welcome news, of course. The controversy inside of 3L continues, whether it be the two separate biomass issue and what have you. But what we don't know yet is what the price will be. Six weeks ago, the Association for Seafood Producers and the union, the FFAW, Unifor, they attempted to put their heads together, come up with a negotiated price that all hands could live with, and that didn't work. So back to the price-setting panel. Last year, at the beginning of the season, harvesters were paid about $8 a pound at the beginning of the season. We are told, and I tried to confirm it, having a hard time with it, is the price that they're paying for Quebec Harvesters, because they're already at the Crab. Closer to $2.25. So an 8.4% increase in the tax is good, but we'll see what the eventual price comes up with, and then we'll see. Just like our property tax, right? It's the value of your home and the mill rate before you know exactly what your sum owing will be. Same thing, so to speak, in the Crab business. All right, what did I want to get to here? Okay. So yesterday, I was aghast. In watching the press conference where members of the RCMP. Prime Minister Trudeau was also in attendance in Truro. Marco Mendocino was also there. And this is a report that was delivered by the Mass Casualty Commission. And we know what this is about. It was the rampage, a murderous rampage, 22 people killed in Nova Scotia. Someone going around dressed as an RCMP officer in a mock RCMP cruiser. So the report tried to dive into actions of the police during The rampage and the timeliness for warning the public and the red flags as should have been acknowledged prior to this murderer going on his spree. But here's, you know, it's hard to even get into the recommendations here because they're sort of flimsy for the most part about the RCMP admitting that they make mistakes. Okay, that doesn't change what happened back in 2020, but it's certainly pretty important for moving forward. They talk about a demonstrated capacity to accept responsibility for errors. Okay, what does that even really mean? They talk about changing the depot model of training by 2032. Fine, but here's where it got really, I think, frustrating and angering, is here you have the RCMP commissioner, the interim commissioner, and the commissioner uh, heading up the RCMP in Nova Scotia. So, and they admit that they ha- didn't uh, have time to read the report and consequent recommendations. They had the report in hand on Wednesday before a Thursday press conference, and yet they had no time? Is there anything more important on either of their tables to than to read this report and deal with what has been systemic issues inside that law enforcement agency, whether it be with sexual abuse and harassment all the way to their actions during this, and even commissioner, former Commissioner Brenda Lucky, and her, com- her communications with the federal government about the weapons being used or what have you, which was playing politics with a very serious issue. So for the Commissioner, the interim Commissioner and the Commissioner... Uh, in uh, Nova Scotia, his name is Dennis Daly, unfortunately. They didn't have time to read the report. May we just suggest, uh, because after 76 days of public hearings, 3,000 pages, a serious matter, the largest mass casualty incident in this country, that maybe, just maybe, you take the time to read the report and consequently get to work to implement the recommendations and the structural fixes required inside the RCMP. But just imagine having the. <sighs> the stomach to get in front of the microphones and the cameras and admit you haven't even read the report when it was on your desk for at least a day. I didn't expect anyone to be able to digest the entirety of 3,000 pages, but certainly be able to speak in some structured form to some of the key recommendations. But if you were struck the same way I was, we can talk about that today. All right, a quick congratulations before we get to the break. Uh, Cornerbrook author Shelly Kowaja has won the BMO Winterset Award for her debut novel, The Raw Light of Morning, that comes with a very lucrative prize, the most lucrative in the province, at $12,500. The other nominees this year were Lisa Moore for her novel, This Is How We Love, and Megan Greeley for her play, Hunger. They both received $3,000. It's a very prestigious award, and hearty congratulations to all the finalists, and especially the winner of the BMO Winterset Award this year. That's Shelly Kowaja. And we do know that it's... Uh, an award which honors uh, St. John's historian and author Sandra Fraser uh, Gwyn. So congratulations to Shelley. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is VOCM.com. My favorite is when you pick up the phone, which you're going to do during this break. Don't go away.
2: Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Second over to the PC member for uh, Stevenville Portaport That's Tony Wakeham. Get the right clicker here. Good morning, Tony. You're on the air.
3: Hey, good morning, Patty. Just wanted. It's been a week now since the provincial budget was brought down, so I just wanted to have some comments on uh, on where the budget is going or what it's proposing to do. Uh, it was uh, a titled "Your Health, Our Priority," and certainly had record spending in uh, in healthcare of three point nine billion. But again, the big questions that are being asked in my district and I'm sure around the province are, you know, when? When will all those things that were announced actually come into f- effect? You know, when will people get access to a doctor? People in my district are many are seniors and people on fixed income and others are still paying $35 to go visit the nurse practitioner today. As the same as they were paying a week ago. We've heard nothing about when will that end? When will they be able to be reimbursed? You know, when will the doors for the many ERs that are closed, when will they finally open? When will the ambulance services be improved? We've heard things announced. And, of course, we have 240 long-term care beds that are closed because of all the nursing vacancies, and the list goes on. And while all those announcements were great, I alluded back, Patty, to, to teams, and you and I played a lot of sports. And if you're going to have a team or put a team on the ice, you need players. And right now in our healthcare system, we don't have enough players. So we're announcing these teams and we're announcing we're going to do all this. And all we're doing is simply taking players from one team and putting them on another. Because there is no long-term plan. There hasn't been a long-term plan. And that's been the the shortcomings in this entire uh, government, their inability to be able to plan from what was what was being told to them since they first got elected and failure to act on it.
1: One of the key areas I think, and you know, this is all boiled back down to how much money government can put out to lure, recruit or retain healthcare professional which really says to me that this isn't an overnight issue. This has been happening for years. We've seen this unfolding, and consequently we find ourselves at a point where we're spending 41.4% of budget monies on healthcare, some $3.9 billion, a lot of which is towards professional recruitment at this moment. I mean the increase is towards professional recruitment. So for long-term care, I think if we get that right to begin with, other things will fall into place. Like the surgical backlogs, like emergency room congestion, like the collaborative care clinics being peppered some 35 over the course of the next 5 to 10 years across the province. Because if we have a bed occupied in a hospital uh, by someone who should be in long-term care, that's a surgery that's been cancelled. If we can put them into the long-term care facilities, and I know the government has made another recent announcement about... Uh, registered nurses in particular, and licensed practical nurses in the LTC, you know, three thousand dollar retention bonus for a one year commitment, eight thousand for people moving from one sector of healthcare into long term care facilities. I think if we get that right, some of the other things fall into place. Not to say everything's going to be simple, and all of a sudden we're out smooth sailing, but I think that's a really important starting point.
3: Absolutely, and the frustrating part is, you know, if you think back to six years ago, seven years ago, five years ago, the nurses union were out talking about the need to do staffing reviews. The NAEP were out talking about long-term care and the need to do staffing reviews. These things were being brought to government. And if we had to take a look at it back then and start increasing the size of the enrollment, the number of people that could enroll in these programs back then, maybe we would have had a better planning outcome than we do now. I'm not suggesting that it would have been perfect, but I'm suggesting it could have been better than it is now because what we're doing right now Is a no-choice budget. Basically, because they did nothing for seven years and finally fired their health minister, they're now forced into taking actions that they really have no other choice but to do. You know, we build build long-term care beds, new long-term care beds. We don't have staff to put in them. Like, there's something wrong with the planning process, and that's been the shortcoming here. And now, as you just said, we literally have to try and play catch-up. So I would ask again— has every single student in those classes right now, whether they be in the LPN programs, whether it be in the nursing programs, have they, in fact, been or are they been offered contracts? How many of them actually have a contract in front of them now that talks about signing on with the, uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador? But before you can even do that, you got to go back and look at the whole retention piece. Look at what it's the nurses true. union have said about what's happening and how they're continuing to lose nurses. And that's got to be a focal point right now. You need to be sitting down at the nurses' union and coming out with a step-by-step plan on how you're going to keep the people we have and continue to
1: recruit new ones. In short order, the RN vacancies went from 600 to 752. Talk about going in the wrong direction. Uh, Let's move on to another topic because I think this one has been... in the news a lot regarding ground ambulance service. So we've seen the problems in whether it be in Trapassi or Cape Royal or Whitburn and Smith's contract that is now going to be in in front of the courts. The whole bit about consolidating, there's a lot of questions that come with that. It might be a good idea, but we don't even know enough detail to give it a thumbs up, thumbs down, or even have a real conversation because we're not really sure what we're talking about. Is is it consolidation under the public banner? Is it consolidation under a private offering? They talk about exemptions. Where are they? Will this mean fewer ambulances, fewer paramedics? Is it all hub and spoke? Exactly what are we talking about here? It sounds like they are trying to deal with what is an obvious problem, but until we can answer even those fundamental questions, we're not really sure.
3: That's exactly another point. In 2015, when the minister walked into the Department of Health, there was a report on his desk that had to do, it was called the Fitch Report, it had to do with the how to overhaul the ambulance service in Newfoundland and Labrador. It was sitting there and has sat there now for seven years. And we're finally now starting to try to roll out again some kind of semblance of an, of an ambulance program. And we have not been shown any of the details. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know how much of the private operators have been engaged in this plan. Certainly, there are need, definitely need to be changes in how we deliver ambulance services in this province. There is no doubt about that. And the concept of central dispatch. That has to be the priority in terms of, you know, the idea of years ago of having territories where each ambulance operator had a territory, and literally you could have an ambulance that's closer to you when you need one, but that ambulance can't respond because it's not in your territory. You know, these type of things have to go. So central dispatch is the first fundamental principle. How that gets delivered, whether it's private, whether it's public, that remains to be seen. But we need a lot more information. We need a lot more discussion. And certainly... We need to be able to have all of the people involved sitting down and talking about how we do this. But right now we know nothing.
1: So we know it's important. Like Being a member of the official opposition is important to ask the questions, hold government's feet to the fire. But what we also need in this country and in this province is also some solutions being offered uh, to some of these complicated problems. What do the PCs think about the ambulance service in particular? Like, how should it best work? Do you have ideas, or are we simply looking for government to provide well, details? Because I, I do think solutions are important to have, as part of these conversations.
3: Well, absolutely, and that's why I reference back. When you spend money on doing reports, and you have a report like the Fitch Report, and it makes a series of recommendations that are in front of government, then it's the onus is on government to sit down and go through those recommendations, not wait seven years. The onus is on government to sit down and go through those things. When you commission reports, the onus is on government to actually do take the recommendations one by one and outline a plan of how you're going to deal with them. You either say, no, we're not going to do this or we're going to do this, but you have to make those decisions. And that's where the information is there already. That's the frustrating piece. And that's why I suggest that those type of reports that are done need to be acted upon. We need to know what's in them. The public in Newfoundland and Labrador need to know what's in them. We need to understand where the problem is going and what direction we're taking.
1: The one uh, last comment for me that I'll give you the final thought is that we also have to acknowledge, and I think this requires some federal guidance or leadership, that the more and more monies, whether it be with the increase in federal health care transfer dollars, the vast majority of the new monies out there, that's some $43 billion. You know, They, they struck a deal for 10 years on $196 billion, only 43 of which is new is what we're getting involved in here now is a province versus province bidding war for professionals. So what's consequently going to happen? We'll increase the pay, we won't increase the numbers, and we don't necessarily deal with the backlogs or have more positive health care outcomes. I would think, and I know this is complicated stuff, but... We really should have sort of some sort of metrics that, uh, that's implicated, prob- or pardon me, countrywide, you know, including cost of living and the affordability of a home and all the different factors that uh, chime into and tax base and what have you so that we don't just start outbidding each other to get to a point where we ultimately, and not, this not to begrudge anybody any rate of pay as a healthcare professional, but we're going to start overpaying people and not necessarily improving the system. So this bidding war is going to be to our collective detriment, I would suggest and
3: and you're absolutely right because i would argue when the principle of mzp universal health care was first introduced that was the 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 idea that everyone in this country of ours no matter where you lived would have access to primary health care and then the specialty services would be provided on top of that but right now the small provinces like ours find ourselves having to put more and more of our budget into health care whereas the federal contribution while they've increased it on a temporary basis Long term, they have reduced what was supposed to be how this whole health care system got funded. So they, you're absolutely right. This needs to be a made-in-Canada solution, not just simply 10 provinces and 2 territories arguing about how much I can pay or how much somebody else can pay. Because those of us, smaller provinces, will always be the ones that get hurt.
1: Richest province wins is a terrible strategy when we're talking about people's health and well-being. I appreciate the time, Tony. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Tony Wakem is the PC member for Stephenville Port Port. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with the Province of Seniors Advocate. That's Susan Walsh. Don't go away.
2: Saturday morning. Join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to IrishNL at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the province of Seniors Advocate. That's Susan Walsh. Good morning, Susan. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. So I don't know if there's anything earth-shattering here, but it's important to speak to some of the concerns that your office hears, and this is through public consultations and or some seniors. I think 913 filled out a survey. Some 390 of those participated in person. So we've got a couple of key areas that they're talking about. Let's start with number one.
4: Yeah, so I think the um, probably the finding that was of most interest uh, was the fact that seniors equally are concerned about their financial and health needs. So, you know, I think we've often known that seniors obviously have concerns about access to health care, especially primary health care, but there may have been a belief that by the time people reached 65, they were getting their federal and, uh, you know, uh, Newfoundland uh, benefits, uh, the OAS, the you know GIS, the uh, senior supplement, those kind of things, that they were going to do okay. They, they were doing fine. Well, this certainly, the findings in this report, given that we had such a large sample size, larger than industry standard, uh, there, you know, is a fair, reasonable uh, expectation that this is, you know, clearly much what most of seniors in the province would say or experience. And as a consequence, they're saying, no, those benefits are not meeting their needs. They are not uh, able to allow them to uh, you know, pay all their bills. 32% specifically said they can't afford uh, things like food, special dietary requirements, uh, health uh, aids like Glasses, uh, walkers, canes—all those kind of things. I mean, it's it's concerning. It's concerning when you consider the determinants of health. Certainly, tell us that you know if if the if your income level is lower, your health is going to be poorer. And so here we are in a situation where our benefits are not meeting the needs of seniors, which is not surprising given that the while the benefits federally are indexed. Um, there's a clawback at the provincial level because the um, senior's benefit claws back any increase that a senior would receive if they get a benefit to their OAS or GIS.
1: Yeah, that whole concept of, you know, we should have these pockets of money stand-alone. If you met the threshold, we shouldn't be clawing back money because all we really do is we shuffle around the problem and the burden, whether it be for the provincial government, the individual, or the federal government. It makes no sense. Uh, right. If the benefits here... I mean, indexing to inflation or the CPI, whatever people choose to refer to, in this country, if you were struggling in 2019 and we had inflation, that always hovered around 2%. Now where we've gone, especially with energy and food, the overall inflation, what is it, 52 but energy and food are the two contributors that keep inflation in those two areas much higher. There has been some stabilizing in the price of, of gas and diesel and what have you, but do we have some sort of understanding, whether it be percentage or dollar amount? Uh, that would look like for indexing uh, provincial po- pots of money. How much more that would add to the seniors' bank accounts?
4: Do we know that number? So that's some of the work that that our office will now do. So. The goal of this report was to really give seniors a voice, to hear what they had to say. We didn't, um, you know, we didn't specifically go to individual seniors. We said, any senior in this province who wants to talk to us, come to us. And so, you know, we went out, we consulted, online survey, all of that. So we took all that and said okay we're going to put this out there this is what we heard from seniors this is the voice now policymakers um, you know people who have control over budgets at the federal provincial and uh, municipal level use this information to make good decisions around how you meet the needs of forty seven point one percent of this province and we are going to take it and say okay where are the gaps? We we know that uh, there's been a lot of things identified to help seniors and, you know, the general population through our provincial budget. There's been some things at the federal level. So now where are the gaps? And so one of the areas is certainly in this area of, of financial stability. And, and so I hope to have the answer to your question uh, in the future.
1: Yeah, that would be an interesting number because yes. we know that the 5% increase in seniors benefit Every increase is welcomed if you're on a fixed income, but when that translates to seventy-two dollars a year, then we're really not talking about a whole lot of money flowing out the door and in their pockets.
4: Uh, like no, to- and it's seventy-two whether you're an individual or you're a couple. So which, sure. that doesn't make sense either. Like, there's a lot of ways to fix this problem, and the fact that you know you get the full amount up to twenty-nine. You know, your income being 29000 but the phase-out at, you know, 11%, 11.6%, is pretty significant. So people, you know, who are making maybe having an income of $30,000, uh, they're getting very little a year in a senior's uh, benefit.
1: Very little. Uh, I'd like to talk about the dementia care plan that was announced yesterday. We've seen the forecast, whether it be 4,000 additional people in this province that will be diagnosed living with dementia. The numbers on the national stage are staggering. What do you make of the plan?
4: Well patty i 'll tell you honestly, so it came out yesterday, and I was tied up with media interviews the entire day. I actually printed it off this morning to read it uh, so but here 's what i 'll tell you in terms of what I know about it, given i 've had numerous conversations with the uh, CEO of the Alzheimer 's Society over the last uh, you know few months, uh, specifically related to my call for the review of the uh, long term care and personal care uh, home system, and knowing you know there 's been so much in the media. Uh, and happening regardless if it was in the media around uh, harm for uh, seniors in those uh, locations. Uh, so we had been having a fair bit of conversation. I knew she was feeling very confident about uh, what was going to be in that um, strategy. I was pleased to hear the minister say that they are going to be focused on training. They're going to be focused on uh, recruitment, more more staff and training of staff and um, of you know, uh, information Information for the general public, for family members, etc. I think they are two huge pieces that needed to be done. So I was really pleased to hear about that.
1: I also think, and I know the better training and preparation for the increase in numbers and to help appropriately treat and help and uh, deal with people with dementia. That's not the right way to put it, but people know what I mean. So I do think it's also quasi-important for the curriculum in K-12 to reflect what's happening in people's families. Because when we have a better understanding of what's happening, we become more empathetic and aware of situations, more informed. Consequently, the K-12 eventual graduates will be better positioned to understand what's happening in their family or their friends' families, and that can also lead to potential uh, enticement or encouragement to work in the field. So- yeah,
4: I, I thought that was lovely, too, because we know that the whole piece around ageism uh, begins early. And, uh, you know, with any kind of education and the, and the engagement of young people into uh, discussions around you know, ageing, uh, ageism, a, a positive light as it relates to what seniors have to bring in this province, I think all of that will, will uh, reap benefits. In our report, I just will note that uh, seniors had told us that if they uh, had a loved one with dementia, that they really could use financial support. And so I I haven't heard those words yet in, uh, coming out of that report. Uh, I'm interested to see if there's any consideration for it. I know that in my discussion with the federal minister of uh, uh, seniors, um, Minister Kara had indicated that they are looking at an aging at home benefit And uh, I tweeted uh, and put out through my email uh, group that uh, I have for seniors in the province uh, that those consultations are now ongoing and that you can feed into uh, their survey online. So I know they are really uh, digging into that.
1: As they should. Uh, Last one before I let you go, and this is broad strokes because I know you deal with policies that affect seniors at large. And I've been trying to keep this on the front burner because when I hear stories, of seniors who are vulnerable to these scammers being taken to the cleaners, it really breaks my heart. So we just talked about this morning the, the mortgage scam that's making its way through Ontario, but the whether it be the grandparents scam and others that we've been trying to talk about to give folks the awareness that it is happening, maybe some things to protect yourself. What do you say to seniors out there? Because we hear the stories. There's at least, I know of at least a dozen. Uh, about eight of those are public. The other four the families are too embarrassed to go public with them. What do you say to seniors?
4: So, um, Patty. It is it is really unfortunate that these things are happening, and really, seniors, beware. We just put out our newsletter there last month, and in it, uh, you know, gave a whole lot of resources around uh, who you can contact, where information is available to you around fraud. Uh, it's on our website. It's, uh, you know, we we put it out on social media, et cetera. You just have to be absolutely beware, be careful, pay attention. If someone's asking you for money, uh Don't do it. I mean, wait, check into it, be sure that it's absolutely needed. Our office, actually, it's a priority area that we're going to be moving on now in the next couple of months to see can we, um, you know, there's numerous community partners out there doing some work around this. Can we help bolster that work to get some uh, plain language, uh, quick uh, reference guides out to seniors uh, to help them, um, you know, kind of wade through all these concerns. Uh, Patty, if I could just say one more thing, I was really pleased to see the federal money coming as it relates to health care, um, you know, through the MCP system. I know the minister is constantly saying, uh, oh, we're doing this, we're doing that. I know, I'm, I'm, you know, I know there's a lot of things in the budget certainly focused on health care. I'm hopeful we'll see something around um, taking care of the backlog for cataracts and for audiology. Uh, you know, we have a lot of seniors who are being negatively impacted in both their hearing and sight, and so I'm very hopeful that uh, some of that money will be targeted in that direction. And uh, most of what we've talked about here this morning, Patty, was all in our submission to the budget process. We had provided a submission saying, here's the areas we'd like you to focus on. I do want to throw out a a you know, a thanks to uh, some of the areas that we had asked for did get done. So we did see that the um, driver's medicals are now going to be out under MCP. That was a call from our office. We did see that uh, we wanted some uh, low-cost housing options, and we saw that. uh now moving forward with, I think it's 750 new low-cost housing options. So- We wanted some changes to the MTAP program, especially for people in Labrador. While we didn't get what we wanted, we see that it's being transferred to a new department. So hopefully that will give it more priority and attention. So there's some areas that we were really pleased to see. We didn't see the coverage for the um, vaccines that we wanted, the high-dose vaccines. That flu vaccine, and the shingles. But again, there's money coming as it relates to healthcare. so I'm hopeful we might see some of those things.
1: I appreciate the time this morning, Susan. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you for the interest.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Susan Walsh, the senior's advocate. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, carbon tax, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away.
2: Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM.
1: This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Dennis, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you.
5: Good to talk to you this morning, I must say.
1: Welcome back. What's on your mind this morning, Doc?
5: Uh, a few things. Uh, carbon tax is the big one. I mean, you know, tomorrow's April Fool's Day. It's kind of ironic that we're going to have this huge uh, tax put on furnace oil, heating fuel. Uh seventeen and a half cents a liter. And it's gonna happen uh April Fool's Day. We granted uh Seamus O'Regan tells us we uh we won't have to pay it until July the first, but it's kinda of like saying we're not gonna have another winter. Uh July the first is good, but December first is coming also in twenty twenty three and that seventeen and a half cents is gonna be there and uh shouldn't be really. It's it's a punitive tax. We all know that. It's a tax that uh, isn't working uh, in terms of any reduction of emissions. There's no direct relationship between one and the other. So it's a punitive tax. And uh, you know, Seamus is on the record as telling us that uh, we're going to get it all back in rebates. And in fact uh, some will get more back than they paid in. And we all know that's not true. So We wonder who the April Fools are this April Fool's Day. And uh, I can only imagine the impact on on people uh, and heating in the coming winter, given uh, the imposition of this carbon tax. Really too bad. And uh, hopefully sometime near in the future, a new government will uh, get rid of it. What do you think of that?
1: Well, I think the carbon tax didn't feel really too dreadful when it was the provincial mechanism and it was only attached to fuels and not to home heating fuels but it will be a problem for people heating their homes there's no doubt about that and the government can talk about programs to move from furnace oil to uh, any form of electricity and mini splits and heat pumps and all the rest but that's not out there for a lot of folks as well i mean the upfront cost is just unmanageable for many families here in the province You know, so the there shouldn't be a tax on home heating fuels anyway, if you ask me. But, you know, with the new government, I'm really not 100% sure. And I just spoke with Pierre Polyev yesterday about what their plan Mm -hmm. looks like here. Because if it's just incentivizing uh, companies and stuff to do these things, well, there's a lot of that in this most recent liberal federal budget. So I'm not 100% sure what the difference looks like. But I, I, I do think that we have played what is important policy has become really kind of bizarre politics. It's not that long ago that a price on pollution, a carbon tax, was a conservative idea. So I don't know what happened. I guess it's as simple as the Federal Liberals put it in, so that makes it stupid. But, you know, that's that's where I think we've kind of lost our uh, lost the plot a little bit on how we talk about these complicated matters, because it becomes very tribal, as opposed to coming up with a good policy.
5: Well, uh, you know, I, I think it was stupid when it was brought in, and I know that was uh, initially with the Harper government, and it's... Stupid today, and it's going to be even more stupid tomorrow when people wake up and realize, they won't realize it tomorrow, but they will realize it on and, and their next batch of oil uh, after July 1st, that, uh, you know, that 400 liters that you're getting in is going to cost you another 17 and a half cents. And that includes, of course, uh, sales tax and so on. So, but it's interesting the comment you make, Patty, because I had a very, very good friend of mine who had an estimate done, wanted to put a heat pump in uh, their house, which is heated right now by uh, hot air, forced air. And uh, the quote came back at a whopping $28,000. How about that?
1: It's a big one, and I've, I've done some of that work, too, just so I could wrap my mind around it. Not that I was planning any big change in my own home, but just yeah. so I had some numbers around so that when people talked about it, I had a little bit of, at least a little bit of information to yeah. uh, attach to the conversation. So we'll see what the future holds for that particular tax, especially on home heating fuels. You know, I think the province is going to be forced into a position where they're going to have to deal with it here on the local level. Because if we talk about home heat rebates and or removing any provincial tax from home heating fuels to help ease what is the pain that's coming, and we keep hearing that it's going to triple, but of course the tripling is in a uh, eight, nine year as opposed to just this uh, this July. So there's a lot to this conversation. The climate change incentives, whatever they call it, the, the rebate, you know, $1,312 for uh, a family of four helps, but it doesn't offset the entirety of the implication of a especially a cold, windy winter. You're going to spend more than that in carbon tax over the course of a year, especially in the winter months, so we'll see what comes. I also see, Dennis, you want to talk about the Trans Mountain. What about it?
5: Yeah, yeah. Now, there's a financial fiasco on top of everything, I would say. Our friend Justin Trudeau bought the pipeline, as, as you know. I mean, you had a call on it yesterday, and he was spot on. Bought it for $4.5 billion. Was going to complete it for, I think it was 6 to $7 billion. It's now up to $31 billion, and not completed yet.
1: Well, I thought the Conservatives wanted uh, the pipeline to be purchased.
5: Well, I'm, uh, t- how do you mean?
1: Weren't the Conservatives the loudest voice in the room talking about the need for Trans Mountain to continue? Because uh, yeah, the actual but, accurate history of all of this is that when the pipeline got shut down by the courts... It was because the process, as put forward for consultations, what have you, was not followed and consequently was halted. Then they went back to the drawing board, yeah. did some of those consultations. The country, and especially Alberta, and the Conservative Party were quite clear. The pipeline needs to continue because the previous owners walked away. So yeah. the government either bought it or shut it down. And so the Conservatives wanted it bought, and now it's been bought, but now it's, a, it's still a problem.
5: Yeah, but, and, and who, who did what is irrespective of the fact that we now have a pipeline, that is costing 31 billion dollars.
1: will never be and, profitable.
5: And and it may be more. Yeah. And and yeah, I mean it's going to carry a lot of Alberta oil to the coast of British Columbia, something like 890,000 barrels a day. And and uh, you know, um uh, good for the province of Alberta in terms of bringing oil to the uh, 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 uh to the coast and for export. Uh but in the meantime, uh, it is another X billions of dollars of debt that uh, that the federal government is is shouldering whoever is there next time round or whoever was there, we have this fifty billion dollars worth of uh, of interest on the federal debt right now, and it's projects like this that get out of hand and and cost tremendous amounts of money and and bring us to where we are today and you know. Uh, you know as well as I do that uh, part of the financing from the Trans Mountain Pipeline is coming from the federal equity position uh, on Hibernia. So yeah, people, just, and that happened in 2019. That was, that's one way of paying for the Trans Mountain Pipeline.
1: Yeah, just a couple of uh, numbers for accuracy's sake. Uh, it's 590,000 barrels per day, and it wasn't bought for 4.7, it was bought for 7.4. And the after last year's increase... The federal government said that they're not going to shoulder any of the additional burden. So we will not shoulder the entirety. Trans Mountain Corporation is actually out there trying to raise the required funds to finish it. So it's not all a federal debt issue.
5: No, but, and, Petty, it is 890,000 barrels a day that will travel because there are two pipelines. They're they're twinning twinning. pipelines. So the combination of the two... Is eight hundred and ninety thousand barrels a day?
1: Yeah, but I'm just saying that it's five ninety for the pipeline that's under construction.
5: that's right. That's and the issue. and the the other one, of course, is carrying the balance. Yes. To the coast, right? Correct. So uh, yeah, so I mean, life goes on, and and we're we're faced with these, uh, these expenses, and uh, you know, thank God, I'll finish off by saying, uh, fellows like Rob Strong, and I noticed yesterday Darren King and the Trades NL. And there are ads in support of Oshore, Newfoundland, Labrador, and the Beta Nord project. It's good to hear people speak out in support of an industry that accounts for 12.5% of the provincial revenues.
1: Yeah, forecasted to hit a billion dollars plus in yeah. money's flowing to the coffers. The question I have about Beta Nord at this point, because we don't know what the negotiations sound like, is where do people put the priorities? Is it about jobs, or maximizing royalties, or how do we deal with Article 82? All these things make this a very complicated issue versus some of the the past projects that have, or of course the four that are in production. That Article 82, I think, is gonna be the most complicated part of getting this done. But you know, for me, like I was told that it's not to be all and end all in jobs, it would be things like R&D investment, which is part of the Standard Benefits Agreement with the CNLOPB, and or investment at post-secondary institutions and the like, or, or increased royalties. But there's an argument to be made that money in people's hands versus money in the province's bank account are two different things. You know, I'm able to deal with my own life if I have a job and pay my bills and hopefully advance in this life versus trust government to do what I consider to be the right thing with money coming in the door. So I like money in people's hands every bit as much as I like a royalty going to the gov.
5: Uh, and I agree with you. And all you had to do was look at the White, Ro- White Rose Project now – that has started again down in Presencia and down in that area and i was told yesterday there's 1200 newfoundlanders and labradorians working down there now on that project and they weren't working this time last year and they're earning big money good money that will be spent in newfoundland labrador and the more we have of that the better the economy we have and the more taxes we have going into into government to uh, fund projects that are, need to be funded.
1: And just the wise crack to finish it off, of course, I'll uh, put back to work by the Liberal government.
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I give them credit for that. But, you know, you've got to realise that if Justin Trudeau and Stephen Gibo could put a knife in the heart of the Newfoundland offshore, they'd do it in a heartbeat. And if you oh. want to know... Uh, why the uh, the project was approved by Stephen Giebel, I'll tell you what I heard months ago. Okay,
1: the very okay, from, what you heard.
5: from an insider in the oil industry and uh, who is a senior individual in hear? one of the top 10 oil companies in the world, and I asked him that question. And? and his response was that they knew that given all the approvals that were in place and given all the money that Equinor spent on developing that project, that if, if they willy-nilly didn't approve it, they would be sued to kingdom come for a fortune. And ah, so out of, that played a, a big role in the approval. Now, mm. whether or not that's so, ask Stephen Gibo.
1: Yeah, but of course the process is well understood, and no more so by, than the uh, oil companies themselves. Uh, Dennis, um, I'm late for the news you appreciate take the care time. have a good weekend you too Okay. okay. Bye-bye. bye bye alright break time when we come back we'll talk about eye surgery and then whatever you want to talk about don't go away
2: weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9 jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy newsmakers traffic weather and more during your VOCM morning show
0: this is Open Line on VOCM
1: welcome back to the show let's go to line number one Bev you're on the air
6: Good morning, Patty.
1: Morning Thanks to you. Thank you taking my call. Pleasure.
6: I want to talk about elective surgeries, and I guess more specifically, laser eye surgery. I had a consult for surgery in 2021 and went into it what I thought was knowing exactly what I was doing, and I'd done my homework and before making the decision, but in hindsight... Not, I, I really didn't. I didn't know much as much as I should have. Um, so at the time, I was wearing glasses for nighttime driving or like if I went to a concert, watched a movie. But other than that, I didn't need glasses. So I met with the clinical optometrist and um, talked about pre-existing conditions. I had an autoimmune issue that we discussed as well as a previous eye injury. And um, despite all of this, I was still the perfect candidate. Um, the procedure that I elected that was recommended and I elected to have done was called monovision. And basically that just means, um, one eye, my dominant eye would be lasered for distance and my other eye would remain as was because, you know, I had no issues with everything else. Um, so I did go ahead with the procedure. I was again, the perfect candidate and, um, Sorry, this is a hard story to tell, Patty, but after 18 months, I feel like I need to talk about it right now. So after the surgery, the first few days were great. I had 20-20 vision. I was ecstatic. My husband had tried so hard to talk me out of getting it done that I was, you know, I was just happy and relieved that, you know, it was a success. Unfortunately, a few days later, my vision turned blurry. Um, I called the clinic and went back and they told me just give it more time um you know several times i call back just give it more time weeks and months passed. i experienced pain and dryness that i cannot i cannot tell you how bad it has been um my intermediate vision which is what so basically, I could read a book and I could drive a car, and my vision was perfect for those things. But everything else, which is what they call intermediate, there was a slight blur or, I guess, like a double vision. You know, it wasn't it wasn't sharp or clear anymore. And driving at night, now I experienced halos and starbursts and all that um, stuff that comes along with it. So after nine months, I call the clinic, and I, at this point, I'm upset. Uh, my daily life been quite significantly impacted by it. My productivity, uh, you know, it takes me three times as long to do something because I can't look at a computer screen like I would normally do. Um, So I did see the surgeon and um, we discussed I had muscle damage done to the eyelid. Um, You know, the double blurry vision and the Horrible side effects. Uh, he was quite blunt and told me, you know, I don't need to give it more time. That surgery was unsuccessful. And at this point, I had three options. I could get glasses for my new uh, vision problems with intermediate. Uh, he could get a touch-up surgery. However, that would mean there's a 30% chance that I would need a second touch-up. Or my third option was get the other eye lasered. Um, but that would give me, you know, distance vision. Then I would need glasses for. Uh, for the you know, intermediate I'm sorry for the uh, nearsightedness you know no good options I, I went there because I didn't want to wear glasses and I and I really did not uh, want to go back and have another surgery so you know fast forward 18 months have passed by I have spent thousands of dollars I've had IPL treatments for excessive dry eyes so the dryness uh, i've learned is not something that has been like weeks months it has been years and years i was never a good candidate for the surgery and you know I-, I went in knowing that dry eyes is um sometimes that happens people will come out with uh that side effect but i already had dry eyes and you know excessive dry eyes, so I-, I didn't think it could be any worse so for anybody who's struggling with the decision trust me when i tell you it can get worse it can get worse and and to the point of causing pain, um, you know, it, not good. Uh, I'm now doing vision therapy, which we're hoping is going to help with my depth perception. Um, drops, ointments, gels, heat compressions, I mean, all of it. Um, a month ago, I joined a support group. Apparently, there's an online support group for laser patients that have experienced um, complications. And, um, you know, I've learned so much um you know, and for anybody who wants to get educated, and, and that's my message here, get educated, go online, CTV, uh, you know, W5, the W5 investigative uh, show. They did two episodes on laser surgery. Uh, every national uh, news station that I can think of has done stories on this. Everything is on YouTube. Um, my advice, do your homework. You think, you know, enough, do more homework. Um, my husband tried to talk me out of it. And, you know, I just, I'm living with the regret. Um, I was told that 1%, you know, less than 1% of people come out with complications and I was remember the perfect candidate. So I trusted somebody else to, that I would, you know, I was in good hands and now I, you know, I live, there is no cure for this and I have to live with it. So I just want everybody to be aware that, um, you know, this, these things can happen. i seen an optometrist um, two weeks ago who told me that 60% of people that get monovision have this exact story as me. And, and I have, um, I have learnt, met so many people in the last year who are living with the same uh, negative, horrible consequences. I talked to, I, I talk to one gentleman who's in his early 70s he had the surgery done probably 10 to 15 years ago and he's talking about how horrible the dryness is so I, I talked to him about the heat compressions and basically just you know microwave uh, this heat pack and put it on your eyes and it, it gives temporary relief he knew nothing about that and uh, you know I'm, there's a lot of people that, do that, that don't know that don't know anything about this.
1: Bev do you think the consultation with the clinic was misleading?
6: I don't feel that um, the decision was made in my best interest um, because even like I mentioned the eye injury, Patty, I had an eye injury and the same eye that was operated on, um, there was a needle embedded in my eye. I was transported one from, from one hospital to another so that a, um, a surgeon could perform with the right equipment so that I did not lose my sight in that eye, the same eye. And that was not a factor, but, you know, since doing my research, Uh, autoimmune issues or eye trauma or somebody who works in front of a computer all day. Those people are not good candidates for the surgery.
1: I appreciate the heads up because there's a ton of people who are actually waiting and on wait lists for this particular procedure. So, like most everything, is do everything you can to make the best informed decision that you can possibly make. Whether it be conversations with others who have gone through the procedure and or maybe spread it around a consultation with different ophthalmologists and what have you about the associated risks and the potential for there to be a poor outcome like unfortunately you're suffering and I'm really sorry to hear that. I thank I'm you for, actually
6: looking to um, see a doctor. There's a doctor in Boston who um, a very high percentage of his patients are, in fact, uh, laser patients who, who have the same complications. So um, there are a lot of people struggling with this.
1: And that's the bad news. Bev, I really appreciate the time. I'm sorry this is happening to you.
6: Thank you. I appreciate it, Patty.
1: Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Oh, boy. Uh, I think we have limited time available with the Minister of Health and Community Services, so we'll take him now before the break. And so that's Tom Osborne, of course. Let's go to line number two. Minister Osborne, you're on the air. Minister Osborne, you're on the air. Is the up there, France?
7: So- sorry. Okay. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Patty, uh, for having me on the show. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, just wanted to, in advance of April 1st, which is when the four health authorities move into one health authority, uh, just give an update to your listeners uh, that the, uh, the transformation is going smoothly. Uh, we will have one provincial health authority come April 1st. Uh, the board is put in place and uh, the next step now is getting the regional councils put in place. Um, and uh, give an opportunity uh, to discuss that and uh, if you had any questions on on the uh, Provincial Health Authority.
1: Sure, well I mean there's there's bureaucratic questions but I think most of the listeners will be most curious about what this actually means for the delivery system. What does that mean for individuals? You know we can talk about whether or not there's redundancies identified and thinning of mid-management or what have you, but how's this going to make healthcare better?
7: So, there's a number of ways that it will. Uh, As part of the provincial health authority, one of the things that we're putting in place is the health information system, which will be province-wide. If you're from St. Anthony and you have to go to St. John's, uh, you know, health professionals, regardless of where you live in the province, will have immediate access to your health file. Uh, Right now, that's a problem because if you're traveling, whether it's on vacation or whatever the case may be, um, health professionals throughout the province don't all have access to your health file. One example, last year, we had a a physician from Labrador was uh, going to Bonavista, I believe, on vacation, uh, knowing that Bonavista had um, some diversions, was willing to do some shifts, had hours of paperwork to do because it was a different health authority. Um, You look at procurement, um, health professionals in one part of the province, if they uh, are needed in another part of the province, uh, the equipment is not always uniform or the same. So we'll get better pricing on equipment through procurement. It'll be consistent throughout the province. Uh, Every person in the province, regardless of where you live, will belong to one health authority. Through the Health Accord and the plan we have in place for the Health Accord uh, right now, you are seeing things like the Heart Force One, uh, the traveling surgeons uh, for hip and knee uh, traveling throughout the province. We will see other outpatient services with the same sort of uh, bringing the service to the patients in areas where the population doesn't necessarily uh, support a large team, a large surgical team who specialize in an area. Uh, so we can bring them to St. Anthony or to Carabinier, for example, for a week of surgeries on a regular rotating basis. So we're starting to see better services. Uh, you will see that throughout the province. You'll see streamlining of programs, um, human resources, payroll, finance, which are all back office, which don't affect the patient. But what does affect the patient is having access to your record having uh, professionals throughout the province being able to move throughout the province where needed if needed or if they desire Um, and uh, uh, health professionals or surgical teams having better access to patients in, in different areas of the province those are just some of uh, the efficiencies that we are putting in place.
1: Does it come with the savings? because you know the province talks about unprecedented and historic spending on health care over three point nine billion dollars, forty one point four of the uh, 41.4 percent of the budget in full. So does this come with the price tag savings?
7: It should uh, absolutely. Uh, when you look at uh, whether it's uh, payroll departments or finance departments, uh, human resource departments, for example, uh, we will need one instead of four. Um, when you look at, again, procurement of, of medical equipment, uh, if, if you're going for diet, even as a patient, in, in outside of the savings, I mean, if, if we've got uh, the A-tender going out for equipment throughout the province, not only do you have uniform equipment, which provides better service, uh, health professionals, can uh, you know ha- you know don't have to to uh get familiar with a different piece of equipment in a different part of the province for example uh, but there are savings in terms of purchasing in uh, you know throughout the province as opposed to a region
1: nobody's cheering for anybody to lose their job but we must have identified uh, overlaps or redundancies in the effort to be more productive and more efficient so will this reduce the number of people working inside of health in the bureaucratic levels
7: Yep. so when you look at back office functions such as human resources, payroll, finance, or corporate services, uh, for example, we will need fewer people doing uh, those positions. However, um, in this province, uh, whether it is a tradesperson, there's a shortage of those. Whether it is IT, uh, there are a shortage of those. or health professionals, there are a shortage of those. Uh, we are in an era where we have Uh, More jobs available in government than we have people or more jobs available in the health authorities than we have people. Uh, So the employment impacts will be managed through attrition and employees have been offered um, and and will be offered meaningful uh, comparable alternative employment. Uh, in, in different areas of the Health Authority.
1: Uh, I know your office told, Fonse, that you had limited time, but I really hope we can touch down on the consolidation of Ground Ambulance Service. So, for starters, when when's the timeline for that to be enacted?
7: So, we've announced uh, $9 million in the budget for the integration of more than 60 services throughout the province. Um, right now, it's fragmented. You have uh, health authority offered services, you have community offered services, and private services. Uh, our private operators, uh, by and large, have um, you know served this province very, very well and have done a good job in the areas that they are in. Um, So the the consolidation, the first step, uh, Patty, is we are bringing in a consultant because it is so fragmented and there are so many different types of services in the province to help us integrate those services into a publicly run service. There may be, in very few situations, but there may be a community service in in a particular area of the province uh, that. Would be difficult to integrate into the public system. The consultant will help us identify whether or not that is the case. Um, but the, by and large, the the services throughout the province will be publicly publicly run. Um, and um, you know, the next step is getting the consultant and then working with our uh, private ambulance operators on what that looks like and and communicating and um, Uh, you know going through the process with them Um, you know so we're confident that uh, this will be a positive transition and support a a more modern health environment Uh, and uh, we look forward to working with our private operators as well it it will also provide a more equitable access to uh, to services throughout the province uh, as opposed to a fragmented system
1: so consolidated under the public offering so do we forecast that this will mean fewer or more ambulances, fewer or more paramedics? And this can we expect just a fundamental hub and spoke, you know, centralized dispatch areas that would simply work as, as I said, the hub and spoke? So do we think fewer or more ambulances and paramedics? I think you'll see a more efficiently run system
7: uh, if you've got two neighboring services. Uh, so it, it, you know. If you've got two neighboring services, they, based on the population, need a certain number of ambulances, but with a central dispatch, the other aspect of this, uh, in terms of having a more efficient service, you will have central dispatch, and first responders, whether it is ambulance um, uh, or or police, for example, uh, in this year's budget, there is investment for a uh, radio system throughout the province to modernize that system. We have first responders in this province right now that cannot communicate with each other uh, because the the radio systems as well are fragmented and antiquated. Uh, we need to modernize that and, and there is funding in this year's budget to do that as well. So you will see a more efficient system uh, as opposed to having different uh, operators neighboring each other um we will see uh you know we're we're working with the college of the north atlantic uh to put off more training for uh pcps um and uh to uh, we're looking at uh, offering the emrs uh, the ability to train up as a pcp uh as well and um uh, you know, th- those offerings will be done through the college and, and perhaps uh, some of the private institutions as well.
1: Will there only be one bargaining unit? Because now we do contracts with fewers and smiths, and I know we can't get into smiths because it's in the courts, but we deal with the private offerings, then we deal with different unions. So will this be all just one negotiating or bargaining unit on the other side?
7: So that is part of uh, the work of the consultant, uh, Patty. We right now have different bargaining units. Uh, we have no uh, intention of of interfering with that. Um, But the, you know, consolidating 60 different services with different bargaining units is complex. Um, And we want to do this uh, as efficiently as possible, but we want to do it uh, proper. We want to do it right so that it is providing the best service to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, it is a huge undertaking, uh, so the, the consultant will help us with all of, the, uh, all
1: of the, the logistics. Appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you kindly. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Tom uh, Osborne. He's the Minister of Health and Community Services. Take a break. When we come back, we're talking about crab. Don't go away.
2: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
1: This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the recently elected president at CNL. That's Pamela Patton. Good morning, Pamela. You're on the air.
0: Good morning,
8: Patty.
1: Welcome Hi. back to the program.
8: Oh, thank you. Thank
1: so you. we now know that there's been an 8.4% increase in the tax, the total allowable catch for snow crab, but what we don't know is the price.
8: Well, we got the email from the union finally after them being to the table, I think, all week that they released the ASP went in with two fifteen and they have went back with three fifty three. Um again, this is a problem, isn't it? I mean can you, can you
1: say those numbers again, I'm sorry? I had a little blip in my headphone.
8: Oh sorry. Two dollars and fifteen cents yep. the ASP, which is the representatives for the fish companies. Sure. And three fifty three by the union, which is our represent our representation. So now it's it's gone to the fish price setting panel. Yep. Nobody could agree it's left to the provincial government, and I'm hoping this call gets heard because, you know, realistically, to catch crab at 15, not feasible. It's just not today. You know, you, you, my my heart goes out to anyone who's got into this industry with a crab attached to it in the last couple of years. Um, they won't make payments. They just, it won't even be possible. It's a bit of an insult when you're speaking to your buyer and they're telling you about two bucks. Um, but the bait is more valuable than the crab because bait to catch it, the, the lowest price I'm hearing is 240 for squid. Um, and you know, like this bountiful squid was well, a couple years ago in Newfoundland. You know, they couldn't hang on to it and sell it back to the fishermen, and even double it at a dollar fifty would still be saving us. Right now, our squid's going to come from Argentina.
1: Yeah, you know, I think the the price in Quebec I've been told is 225. So I'm I'm not going to guess we're going to be too far off even there's always a bit of a disparity between uh, other parts of the maritimes and quebec versus our landed values here so and that's a dollar 40 between the uh between association of seafood producers and the union that's a pretty sizable gap when we're, we're talking about only 350 top dollar
8: yeah it is it's a sizable gap and and again in, in in a better situation even an average of the two might be best which is not allowed right it has to be one or the other um, my fear at 215, it isn't feasible. Like in today's world, and how did the crab get to this? Like they say they flood the markets or whatever, but I mean, you know, you're talking crab now is, is going to be cheaper than a bottle of cheese whiz, like a meal of crab, literally. Like, you know, the cost of living is never incorporated into the price evaluations, the cost and expense of the boats. You can't have any fisheries in which the boats cannot feasibly fish it. Nobody can keep going in the hole or go in the hole. Uh, they'll make a reference, to well, what you did good last year, but again, here in 3PS, um, the bountiful crab we've seen with prices the last couple of years is only offsetting the three and four years that the crab wasn't here. We totally, our quotas were cut from 94,000 in 2011 by 2016. I think we were down to 15,000, right? We still don't really know what happened to it, but those were hard times. And at that given time, we bought in at over half a million. I can't even imagine what the people who've bought in recently at a million plus are going to suffer.
1: But, of course, how do you even pragmatically factor that into setting the price? Because the price can only include what the market could bear. Isn't that the only real fair evaluation?
8: Why do we not have a Canadian market? Like, why are we relying on other countries, and especially Asian countries? The cost of living their whole lifestyle is is so different.
1: But doesn't most Um, of the crab go to the States?
8: That's what they say, but they're still saying the Asian has a factor to it, right? And I'll be honest, I went to Ontario there um, a couple of weeks ago, and, of course, I hit all the seafood markets I could just to see um, what prices were at and stuff. And I'm going to tell you, finding snow crab was near impossible. Uh, I found uh, some Alaskan crab was at $69.99 a pan, some BC crab, which doesn't even look appetizing, was at $6.99 um, but what I did find were two packages, one package of um, a crab without the shells, just the legs. It was a product of Canada, but it had been shipped to Korea and actually processed, I guess, and sent back. Um, it was the Asian market I was at. And another thing, that was 29.99. dollars um, And the only other piece of crab I could find, and this was, it was in multiple packages, literally it was one each, was, I don't know if they do it for their soups or whatever, but it was literally a, flo- a frozen block of ice with no more than two crab legs, at best, in it for meat. That was twenty
1: nine ninety nine. Well, Pamela, are you suggesting that uh, the processors aren't trying to find a market? Like, closer to home is a better profit margin as well. So, you know, I know the white tablecloth in the United States has really been the home for a lot of crab over the years. We can talk about Russian crab in Japan and what that means for however much snow crab is left in cold storage. But do you think that they're not trying to satisfy markets closer to home? I just I want do. to make sure I'm reading you correctly.
8: I 100% believe that's a large part of the problem, and that's what's happening with the price. The, the buyers in New Zealand are buying it and pretty much shipping it a raw or a very basic cooked product that's not ready for the table. It's being sent to another buyer who's then sending it to another buyer. And everybody wants to make money, but it seems like, you know, the fallout is once again going to be on the fishermen. It's. Uh, I do believe that in this case, you know, they're saying they don't have um, any market. Well, I'm, I'm not, I don't entirely believe that. I know it's been a drop, but I don't believe there's no market because, like you say, they wouldn't want to buy a period, um, but they still want it. And, um, again, if, if, if more processing licenses were given out, maybe local. Um, while I was in Ontario, I didn't find this place. When I came home, I've been doing some research, and it's really interesting. If you look up... the Cuddles Seafood, um, just one second, I'll got the name here, uh, Cuddles Fish Market in Kitchener, Ontario. I actually spoke with the owner. Very innovative. It's the neatest thing I've ever seen. It's almost like Amazon for fish. And they will ship anywhere in Canada. And not only can you buy a species that you want, you can even buy a menu. And they have recipes. So if you wanted to order fish cheddar, they're going to send you your scallops, your shrimp, your fish, along with uh, a milk and your cream of mushroom with a recipe card. I mean, these are innovative, and I have family all across Canada. Everybody's crying for seafood from New Zealand.
1: Yeah, fair enough. I, just, I always harken back to uh, one time, this is a number of years ago, in Florida, at the grocery store, salt fish from this province. And at that time, I think the, the harvesters at the wharf were getting in and around 50 cents. And a pound of salt fish at that grocery store in Florida was eighteen ninety nine. so it touches a lot of hands before it hits the consumer.
8: Oh, 100%. And it's funny you mentioned that because I went to Jamaica last May. It's the first time I've ever been anywhere tropical. And when they knew we were from Newfoundland, that was brought up. It's a big thing in Jamaica, too. Salt fish is one of their traditional dishes. Yeah, that's right. And Newfoundland was one of their biggest suppliers at one time.
1: Interesting stuff. I guess we'll all find out at the same time what the price setting panel lands on. It always kind of.
8: I don't mean to cut you off, but I just want to get back to that really quickly. It's a bit alarming, though, that the ASP is in communication with fish bars. I called my fish bar before the price came out, and he, he told me what they wanted to pay. We had discussions. I, I don't think it's acceptable when the bait is going to be more than the product, and then you have fuel, right? It's, it's, it's doomed. But the thing I wanted to point out is why do our union not speak to us about this? Nobody gets reached out to. It's all secretively done. They're showing up. They don't, they don't tend to they tell you no price. There's no communication, but they're supposed to be our representation. And the one thing they aren't in knowledge of is the expense and operations of these companies, right?
1: I appreciate the time, Sroni, Pamela. Thanks a lot. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. That's Pamela Patton. She's the president at CNL. Let's try to get half back on track.
2: Let's take a break. Peter's there in the queue to talk about violence in schools. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
2: Welcome back. Let's go
1: to line number one. Peter, you're on the air.
0: Yes, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. I'd just like to thank
9: uh, Pam Petten there for uh, adding uh, some meat to the to the bones, I would say, and the uh, fishery matter, but I'm not going to. And you did a good job interviewing her, to uh, asking the right questions. But I'm not going to go there this morning. Okay. I'll probably get back to you next weekend, eh? Uh,
10: okay.
9: Paddy, uh, like, uh, I think I listen to too much news, and I think I listen to too much job line and everything else. But uh, it gets uh, like, as a, as a grandparent and stuff like that, someone who was after going to school themselves, and uh, who was after putting their children to school and now got grandkids in school. I think you know like there there's a lot of things lacking. Uh that that like when we went to school like we didn't go to the principal office. You know, like somebody might have went to the doctor's office but after that everybody played and got along good together after that, you know? But uh then the, the kids went to school, well bullying was picking up then to say the least in the eighties, nineties like that. And uh, today, I think it's out a whack, and I think the, the government has turned a blind eye to it, and I think, you know, like, uh, teachers are not really uh, able to do anything. And uh, if someone complains about being bullied, uh, they'll go to the principal's office and they'll complain about somebody bullying them, and then, you know, like, that person will go back to the classroom, then the teacher or the principal will go up, and get the uh, the one that was accused of bullying girl or boy and uh, bring them down to the principal's office so it just gets worse for the person that really reported the the it, person for bullying it
1: can you know but from where i sit and my wife was a teacher and my boys just recently through K to 12 is i think we put more focus on the person who has been bullied or has been on the receiving end of a violent attack and we try to help protect them and shuffle them around we don't really do enough with the perpetrator themselves which i think adds to the problem and last comment let you go peter you know i'm not so sure it's any worse today than it ever was when we were in high school i graduated in 1986 there was plenty of fights there absolutely was i went to a pretty rough high school i think the difference now is that because everyone has a recording device in their hand and they're surrounding the fights and stuff and they're taking the videos and they get posted and widely shared. And consequently, it gives us the feeling that things are much worse yeah. as opposed to nobody ever recorded any racket I was ever in down by Rennie's River after school. So I think we're just seeing more, which consequently makes us feel like it is, uh, or, or there is more.
9: Well, it's true. There's a lot, of, a lot of mirrors in what you just said. But at the same time, if we just keep, like, turning a blind eye to it, like, when some kid 16 years old comes back and shoots up a school... Oh,
1: let's not say that.
9: You know what I mean? No. Where did they really start to? You know, like, there's people who are being bullied are probably not the most popular kids in school. Maybe they got a little bit of a uh, mental illness. Maybe they got a little bit of overweight, less weight. I don't know. You know, maybe they're not the smartest ones. But how could a kid learn... If he already got some kind of a disability and you put all this pressure on him every day, you know, but...
1: The short answer is they can't.
9: But no, they can't, but uh, Minister Hage said our schools are safe. Now, I don't know where he's been or how long he's been there, but, you know, where do we think this outside school bullying uh, and violence takes place to, if it don't start in the classroom? You know, if you don't put people in the hallways to monitor what's going on, and if you don't put cameras in the hallways to monitor what's going on, you know, I, I'm not saying I got all the answers because I haven't got them. But I am saying this. Somebody's going to have to wake up because everybody got a boiling point. That's and, true. Uh, and that's just like me, you, or anybody else. You know, it's only so much a person can take, and then all hell breaks loose. And we've seen that so many times across Canada, U.S., the past. And it doesn't have to be a big city. It can be Smile, Roar, Lufa Land, for that matter.
1: Oh, it can happen anywhere. That's that's absolutely true. I, I, it's not my job to decipher what one politician or another will, would say. But I think what the minister is intimating is that inside the confines of the school, it is safe. Now, will there be altercations uh, inside a school? Very likely and quite possibly, and I'm sure more than might happen today. The big problem becomes... How do you monitor school grounds and just on the fringes of school grounds? So what do we do in the playground? What do we do in the parking lot? And some of these uh, incidents of violence take place not too far away from school, but not on school property. So I don't really even understand how we navigate that. Apparently at PwC, there were some commissionaires outside trying to keep an eye on things. So inside the school, probably for the most part, pretty safe. Outside the school, much different. So that's the place that we've got to focus in on trying to curb the acts of violence. You're always going to have the so-called entry-level bullying where your mother dresses you funny and you got the freckles or the red hair or the funny shoes or all that stuff. It's just kind of nature of the beast. We have to talk about being able to cope with that. But it's the violence outside the confines of the school walls. That's the concern.
9: Well, you know, maybe if somebody was monitoring the hallways and monitoring the school grounds, maybe then, if you see this going on, well, that that person who was manager could bring it to the school, the school's attention. And maybe then they could address the parent of the child that's doing it. Because we all know, like a bully or bullies, it's a very cowardly act. Sure. Whether you beat up an old woman in a senior's home or whether you beat up kids, you know, like, uh, you know, attack kids violently. They're like wolves and coyotes. They hunt in packs. And it's just really... Deep down inside, they're weak. So, you know, like, and that's the only way they can get the attention that they want. But uh, for me, if that was my grandchild at Prince of Wales Collegiate, the best thing that could happen to them is the police got them before I did.
1: Well, the police no, did get them I
9: wouldn't be able to tolerate somebody doing that to my grandchild.
1: I know. Or I, I get child. that. I get that, Peter. And we all worried about our children and their grandchildren when they are out there. I'm going to leave it at this last comment, and I'll give you the final thoughts. The best story I've ever seen about bullying and trying to curb acts of violence and/or fundamental bullying in schools came from a story in the United States. I can't remember exactly where, but I'm thinking it was in Wisconsin. And what they did was the most popular people in the school the high school quarterback of the football team and other super popular uh, boys and girls or young men and young women, what they did is that they saw the folks who were being taunted and attacked. And so what they did is they went to social media and let's just say young Tiffany is being bullied, but Tiffany is a terrific piano player. They would send out social media posts that say, let's have three, uh, three cheers for Tiffany, who is an amazing piano player. Way to go, Tiffany. Next thing you know, The bullies and the cowards that they are, they saw the high school quarterback say, oh, okay, Tiffany is a good person. Now, I kind of feel like she might be a little bit off limits because I don't want to have to stand up to the quarterback. I don't want to have to stand up to the prettiest, most popular girl in school. So the most popular kids, because the bullies are the few, the rest of the school uh, body, the student body, they can take their schools back. Don't be afraid of the cowards. If you're the most popular kid in school or one of them, play your role. Cozy up to the kids that you see are being attacked on the school bus or bullied in the school or shoved around on the playground because they're the people that can make the difference. They're not afraid of the adults. They're not afraid of the supervisors. They're not afraid of the teachers. But they will absolutely be afraid of the most popular kids in school because that ostracizes them further. So I would suggest take back your school kids. If you're the most popular crowd, do it. You can do it.
9: Yes, that's right, Patty. And I will say end by saying this. Uh, Patty, if one parent, one bully, one government official... Our one teacher, heard this conversation this morning Well, it was well worth the
1: call. Thank Precia- you. I appreciate the time, Peter. All of this. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, you can Google that uh, story up. They did it. They saw a school change, not overnight, but very, very quickly. The most popular kids, you have the masses that support you and not the bully. It's not about fighting back physically. It's about showing them that we have strength in numbers. So for you cowards, Just don't tempt us, because we're the many, you're the few. Let's take a break. Don't
2: go away. Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Corner Brook. He's the Minister of Immigration, or responsible for immigration. That's Jerry Byrne, Minister Byrne. You're on the air. Thanks
11: so much for having me on, Patty. I really appreciate it. No
1: problem. What's on your mind?
11: Uh, well, first off, I do want to I want to compliment you on the uh, on the last caller and the last conversation. That, uh, you were very solutions orientated, uh, not uh, focusing on the problem, but really on the solutions. And I, I have to say, I I listened to every word of that conversation, and I felt it was. I felt it was very, very uh, productive, and I, I learned things today from from what you had to say and just the perspectives that you offered. Dig in, be part of the solution, be imaginative. Don't uh, just simply address the core, the the obvious. Go deeper, and um, and bullying can be resolved, and and it takes a community to do it. And so, anyway, I just had to say that it uh, left a. Uh, quite an indelible
1: mark on me. Uh, I appreciate that. You know, take back your school. When it becomes an act of violence, let's stop college bullying. Let's get law enforcement involved so from the bottom we'll work up and we'll see what we can do To You're never going to eradicate it, but you can't control it. Uh, okay, Absolutely. I appreciate that. So Minister
11: with Ray. that said, yeah. uh, the community, of community within communities. in uh, Here on the West Coast, uh, we took an opportunity, a decision to to bring a, a group of Ukrainians who were ready, willing, and able to join the workforce, join, join the labor market. We uh, we did a bit of a pilot project here this past week, uh, Patty, to bring 50 Ukrainians out to Deer Lake, Cornerbrook, and Stephenville to hold job fairs and meet with employers, to be recruited, to bring forth their skills. And I got to report to you. This is going to, we're going to translate this to other parts of the province. It was a huge success. Uh, Can't can't raise it up any higher.
1: How do we measure success?
11: Uh, Job offers.
1: Okay, and so so just to give an idea, how many people came in the door, how many walked out with an offer, or the possibility of one?
11: So 50 walked in through the door, and I would suggest to you there were probably at we're we're just tallying the results right now but there may have been 85 to 90 job offers so in other words uh, or job offers that are pending that soon as the employers so they met them on on Monday they had follow-up meetings on Tuesday then we went to Deer Lake on Wednesday they met with employers uh, in Deer Lake on Wednesday then they met with employers on in, in Stevenville on Thursday uh, they had face-to-face kind of uh, recruitment or almost not speed-dating, this might not be the necessarily the best uh, example or, or descriptor, but they had an opportunity to present their resumes, present their skills, present themselves to employers. Employers got to know them a little bit better, and employers walked away saying, a job offer, we will assemble something now. Based on what we now know, we will assemble something and send you a uh, a job offer in the very, very near future. So this group went back to St. John's as of this morning, and uh, employers now are, uh, are, are putting together the job offers. But I can tell you, uh, every one of the Ukrainians that came out here will be faced with a bit of a dilemma. They will have multiple job offers.
1: Good problem to have. So yeah. with the Ukrainians or any newcomer, the couple of obvious hurdles will be the transference of skills, licenses or accreditation, and then, of course, being able to speak the language. Because on a job site, for instance, if we're working as a tradesperson or what have you, language becomes the ultimate uh, issue when we talk about safety, for instance. So what are we putting in place to not only coordinate these job fairs, but to deal with skills and accreditation and language?
11: Beautiful. That's exactly what has to happen, is that there are, for successful resettlement, it's a job, it's housing, and good English competency to be able to integrate well into the workplace and into the community. So this is about the jobs. Employers were tasked with the uh, with the responsibility and the option to work with the Ukrainians on housing solutions for related to their employment, related to their being our new neighbors, and English as a second language is readily available here on the West Coast for Ukrainians. We actually did a tour of some of the facilities so that they could actually meet some of the instructors, and that's one of the great things about the Ukrainian community. Patty is that part of the of the group that came here were english as a second language instructor so they were ukrainians who already were capable of assisting their their own people their 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 fellow countrymen in the task of learning the english language and so they will be principally some of the uh the best english language instructors so you're absolutely right
1: uh quick update before we run out of time get to the news there was a lady called i'm pretty sure it was this week talking about one Ukrainian family that has been in a hotel room, it's a family of five, in a hotel room since the 6th of January. We have talked about the fact that there is a housing crunch across the country, You know, access to health care and all those things. Are more and more newcomer families finding a place to live because the affordability issue is real. A family of five in a hotel room for months on end is not good for them or us or anybody else. So what's the status of finding homes?
11: Or places so we've to live? had a huge surge uh, with the federal government Uh, had had previously announced that March 31st, today, was the last day for the issuing of the federal visa and work permit and the federal supports because there is a small amount of money that's being given by the federal government directly to the Ukrainians, uh, $3,000 per adult, $1,500 per child. Uh, That was potentially destined to come to an end as of March 31st. What happened in the last several months, Patty, is that the number of Ukrainians who have come deliberately and directly to Newfoundland and Labrador as their choice, leading up to that potential closure of the federal programming, we've had a huge surge in the number of Ukrainians. We now have 2,400, just over 2,400 Ukrainians living in Newfoundland and Labrador. Some of them are in temporary housing. So that has put a little bit of an extra, uh, an extra strain on things. But we are extremely confident that that will work themselves out, and that's one of the reasons why we went to the west coast to start to move around to 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 introduce and to uh, encourage Ukrainians to look at other parts of the province. We have Ukrainians in just about every nook and cranny, every 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 cove and every town and every city uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador but we really want them to look at new opportunities on, in Central, Labrador, West Coast, and that's really what this is all about. And that's a big incentive to kind of uh, help that and get people on their own. Ukrainians do not want to be in a, ho- in, a in a temporary accommodation. They want to buy or build homes is what sure. they want, and that's where this is going.
1: A friend of mine uh, hired recently hired three Ukrainian welders. I'm quite pleased with their performance. Uh, very quickly, how do we ensure that all newcomers, Ukrainians included, have this type of information for looking for opportunities? And importantly, how do we ensure that the hiring public, whether it be on the West Coast, South Coast, Labrador, also know that these fairs are coming up and have information in hand so they can make an unemployment-related decision as well?
11: Well, this conversation is certainly going a big way in that process. The ANC and their Access uh, Employment Service, the Association for New Canadians, has an employment service. They've been doing a lot of the work. Task Force NL has been engaged in this. They were involved in this particular West Coast job fair, but uh, really, what it all boils down to is that I have this, taken a decision that just as I rolled up my sleeves and uh, and brought and encouraged Ukrainians to come here, that's now become such. You know, we've 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 really succeeded in that in many respects. I am rolling up my sleeves uh, and um, working on the job situation. Let's get these are people who are ready, willing, able to work. I've had every employer who I've ever communi- you know, spoken to, who hired a Ukrainian, has nothing but glowing stories. They just say their only comment is, "I wish we had done this months ago." And that's that effort is going to ramp up in the uh, in the coming days, weeks, and months ahead.
1: I appreciate the time. After the news, we go. Thank you, Minister. Thanks, Patty. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye. Minister Jerry Byrne, Minister of Immigration. Time for the news. But very quickly, an emailer looking for contact information for Susan Walsh and her office at Seniors Advocate NL. And so the contact telephone number, if you'd like to get in touch with the Seniors Advocate's office, uh, the toll-free number is 1-833-729-6630. That's 1-833-729-6630. Or the email address is a simple one. It's Seniors seniorsadvocate
2: at SeniorsAdvocateNL.ca. Take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about the price of food. Talk away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back to the program. Uh, let's begin this hour on line number one. Leonard, you're on the air.
10: Hello, Mr. Lady. Hello. You got me? I got gotcha. you. I'm... Uh... Talking to you before uh, once or twice, but I never got seen me get a, a good uh, a, a talk, But uh, I'm gonna to try to straighten it out now. Uh, I, I was just thought talking to you one time about uh, when you was out in Alberta, young know, fella. I was after I of being there. Then uh, with James Roscoe that killed for four cops.
1: Right, I remember that. I was there yeah, at the but time. I'm not
10: on top of that now. We got that's, thats water under the bridge. We don't want to bring that old shit up now, do we, buddy?
1: I don't know. You brought it up.
10: Or, I'm talking to you this morning about, uh, Start off. I got two or three little small things I'm going to get around my chest quick because I'm slow behind you. Uh, first thing, uh, I got everybody calling me because I'm a spokesman here from Harbor Grace area a little bit about, uh, about this, uh, Grocery job that we, we start off with. Patty, about, uh, I don't want to cut you off and you cut me off, but that's the way it seems like. Uh, it's about the grocery stuff. Four hundred and sixty six dollars with the grocery the groceries job for uh on the go from uh, the federal uh, about uh it's about the groceries it's uh, two uh, a man with two children against four sixty six. Have you heard me? I'm listening. Four sixty six, right?
1: For a family and, of four. Okay, so just so I know what we're talking about, you're talking about what uh, they're calling. Just hold on a second.
10: We're talking about the groceries, the groceries, uh, that the federal government's going to give out for the. Uh, on the new. On, on the new. Uh,
1: the new GST. You understand what
10: I'm saying? But no federal. What's going to give for groceries? Yes, I do. Okay, they're going to give four sixty-six for a man with two children. Understand me, uh, Patty, now? And then you got. The, one person like me, a federal and I not, not, not I picked up myself, I don't really care. I, know I don't i get nothing. I never got nothing out of government, only what I earned. Uh we got another one there is uh I believe it's two thirty three for someone like me and then there's another one two thirty four, one dollar more. Okay, I don't know
1: mate. about I don't know about that one, but for for a senior on their own it's two hundred and thirty-four dollars, that's right.
10: Pardon?
1: For it's one,
10: Seniors, it's $234, a, yeah. At uh, one there's time, one there for 233 That's That's for the welfare. The on welfare, don't get none. One, they get a dollar less. So that's no big deal. And a why, what do you think of that, Patty? Well, I
1: don't even know if that's true. To be honest, I haven't seen that broken down like that. But, and uh, there's
10: four. <laughs> I don't understand the one, there's four. This is what I'm calling about for a lot of people. There's four. Sixty-six for a man with two children. Right. That's who gets it. Now, -hmm. what about the man that got like a lot of people in my area? A lot of them, they got one child. They still get in my category, like me. They get, they get the, they get the one, they get the, they get the because they only got one child. What do we do that in? You know what I mean by end, don't you? I won't say the word, but you know what it. We leaves him out this end feller. what's going on there, Freddie? Can you understand that, or am I doing wrong, my darn Sending you wrong.
1: Okay, so the grocery rebate. It's a maximum of one fifty-three per adult, eighty-one dollars per child, eighty-one dollars for singles, two twenty-five for a single senior. So yeah, I'm. Is are you? making a point that I can speak to or you want me to hear or understand? Uh, okay, Leonard, what I'm going to ask you to do is make the point that you're trying to make and then we'll move on from there.
10: I'm just saying that what what, what everybody's hearing, what I'm hearing, what everybody's hearing, what I'm hearing, I'm not hearing. I don't really... I do really care. I want myself here, me, the cat and the dog. That's just as much as I tell another... What they're saying, what they're saying on... The fact today is, anyone uh, federal, this is federal. That's not new to about That but they're saying it's four hundred sixty-six dollars.
1: Yeah, I heard that part.
10: For a person that rears up two children, but a person that rears up one child, the way it, it keeps on going that little category, they don't get money for the one child. They just they just got to stand the same as me and you. We're going to get four hundred. And uh, 233, okay. 234. Okay. Can you understand what I'm saying, Betty? I suppose,
1: but what what is the point you're making, though? I know the numbers.
10: You know numbers? I do. Well, what is the point? Why are, are the person that got two children get 466? The person that got one children, they get money for that other child. Can you understand now? Yeah, the, it's, you, can't, you can't understand the point.
1: Well, I'm not so sure that's my doing. Uh-huh. So I'm not sure that's my doing. So it's $81 per child, right? So that's the one-time grocery base. I never base. heard
10: nothing about that at all, Patty, but I'm sorry cut you okay. I have heard nothing about $81 per child. Okay, now, A person that gets
1: two. Leonard, Leonard, you complained about me cutting you off when I haven't been doing it at all. But uh, I, I, I appreciate the time this morning, Leonard. Thanks for the call.
10: I'm just saying a person that got... Yes, that, I
1: know. I, we heard the numbers. That's right. You, you're, you're pretty close uh, to the numbers uh, that you offered. The person that did
10: 230, yes,
1: 234
10: dollars 34 will also get $81 for one child,
1: right? No, that's a total sum. The, the breakdown uh-huh. is... Uh, appreciate the time, Leonard. Uh, hopefully, folks will get some satisfaction with this uh, one-time GST bump.
2: Let's go ahead and uh, let's see. Let's take a break. Talk away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
2: And welcome
1: back to the program. Let's go. Line number let's go to line number four. So good morning to the NDP member for Lab West. That's Jordan Brown. Jordan, you're on the air.
12: Good morning, Patty. And it's fantastic. Uh, just, uh, this is the ninth year I've been calling and talking to you about Labrador Flag Day. <laughs> We've been doing this for nine years now. Terrific. Yeah, no, It's been fantastic. The uh, first time I remember, to actually, uh, my very first call ever to you was about the 40th anniversary of Labrador Flag. So, you know, this is, uh, this is an anniversary for us, too.
1: <laughs> I appreciate like, You know, for starters, and I think I've told you this before, but the Labrador Flag is beautiful. And someone very kindly sent me one there a couple of years ago, which I really appreciated. Someone obviously from Labrador. But let's talk about the history of the flag before we get into some of the symbolism and what it represents today for people in Labrador. So if I remember correctly, it was a group of people led by Michael Martin. And the, eventually that flag was, I think there was the initially some 60 or so that were hand-sewn by Michael Martin's wife. Talk us through the origin of the flag.
12: Yeah, so um, so in 19... 19- Seventy-three. Um, the then, I guess, Moore's government wanted to do something big for the twenty-fifth anniversary of Confederation sure. with Canada. So Mike Martin, being Mike Martin and uh, being, you know, the lone member for the Labrador Party, decided. Well, you know, he didn't see any representation of Labrador in any of the projects that were coming about. So he uh, convinced a group of Labrador students at Memorial University. Later, they, they they became known as the Labrador Brotherhood to apply for a grant. For the materials to make a flag to represent Labrador, because at the time there was a lot of discussion about why did the province use the Union Jack as a provincial flag and not have its own standalone. So it was kind of a a nod to you know some of the topics of uh, hot topics at the time in in the province. And so using a government grant from a, for a 25th anniversary project of commemoration, they sewed 63 Labrador flags, uh, Mike Martin, these students, and um, his wife Patricia. And out of those flags, the plan was to send one to every town and village in Labrador. And on the, on the 31st, they would all together raise them at their town halls. And at the same time, uh, there was extra flags sewn. And one was given to Mel Woodward, another one to uh, the member for Labrador West, Joe uh, uh, Rousseau. And then one was given to Mike Martin himself by one of the students from Memorial University with the Labrador Brotherhood. And this is how it all came together uh, as a as, as an idea that you know they didn't see Labrador represented in any aspect of the province at the time.
1: Well, it's interesting you mentioned that as the impetus because – you also went on to mention that there was no real provincial representation in the flags flown at Confederation Building and other places, because at the time we were simply all flying the Union Jack. So it's a, it's a duopoly that I think is kind of interesting here. So uh, I'm sorry, go right ahead, Jordan.
12: Yeah, and, and you're right, and and it was interesting because uh, months after all that happened, uh, uh, Mike Martin was called up to the eighth floor by then Premier Moore's, and Mike Moore's wanted the. Mike to sign over the rights to the Labrador flag to the province to be the provincial flag, and Mike refused at the time, saying, "No, I made this for Labrador. I didn't make it for the province." So, you know, there was even a there was a slim chance that you know that even the Moore's government saw that there was something in this that was more, uh, you know, than what they were than the Union Jack at the time because, you know, it, it was it carved out some self identity, but at the time, even the Moore's government saw that self identity being carved out.
1: Yeah, and, and it is quite beautiful. It wasn't that long ago that there was a little bit of a tit-for-tat or to-and-fro uh, about flying the Labrador flag at points of entry into Labrador as an official flag, which has happened, and I think for the, for the better, and there's no reason why it wasn't in the past. So what should people understand about the flag today that you think is maybe missing in the island portion of the conversation?
12: well you know it, it, it's a symbol of you know uh of you know the uniqueness that our province is because remember we're two large land masses joined together in a political union, and at the same time you know we share a common history, but we also share distinct histories separate too so it's one of those things about you know cultural sharing and you know the identity that you know we can have multiple identities in one place, and at the same time, you know people uh, on the island should be proud of the fact that you know that We are such a very unique place because there's not many places in the world that (laughs) is a uh, that are like you know we are Newfoundland and Labrador. You know there's only a handful of countries in the world that got that and you know the two places that actually coexist. And you know this is uh, a part of it that you know that if someone from the island sees a Labrador flag at the public, they can know that's still my province. That's still the same place I'm from. It's just one half of it. And so you know there there is still that common thread that we should all uh, you know. join together, and, and just like your conversation you, you you just had with Minister Byrne about you know newcomers coming to our province and, and and finding and building homes, it's the same thing. We 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 we're a we're a fabric. We're we're like a quilt, a beautiful quilt with different pieces in it, and that's how we should continue to be. That even this Labour flag is still a part of the of a larger quilt that makes up our our province.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there's I think different regional cultural attachments in different parts of the island as well. Which there's nothing wrong with that if we were. All mirror images of each other, I think, would be a pretty boring old vanilla place to be. Uh, so I do appreciate the flag, and happy Flag Day to you. And, you know, we see that stylized image of the black spruce, which I believe is the most common tree in Labrador. That it's the most or? common
12: tree in the entire province, oh, actually. Okay. Good <laughs> and uh, And it's interesting is that... Um when we use it, uh, we use it as a, as a symbol of uh, of unity because we're all from a common stock. We're all you we're all you know we're all human, and, but we have different branches, which means we're you know we're different groups, but we're all we all come together at the very end and the point. And that's the interesting part about it is that it's a little life lesson, but you can see it because if you ever pick a black spruce twig, it'll look like that. And then you can kind of look at it and go, oh, "Okay, this this makes sense, right?" Because we're all we're all we're all in this together. And that's how I look at it. We're all in this together.
1: I'll take it. Appreciate the time this morning, Jordan, bye. for our ninth annual check-in.
12: <laughs> take care, my friend. All
1: Bye-bye. the best. Bye bye, Jordan Brown, NDP member for Lab West. Uh, let's go to line number two. Jason, you're on the air. Yes, Patty. Yes, sir.
13: Uh, one question now. Uh, everybody's talking about uh, social assistance checks now. Uh, a couple of years, a nice while ago, now they've been having them on the it was the 15th and the end of the month, and then they changed that from the first to the 16th. That made everybody lose a half a check a year. Now a lot of people are talking about. Uh, I phone Tony Wakeham and ask him about it, and I phoned my worker about it, and uh, no answer at the worker. They don't give you that number no more. It says that it's disconnected. So I phoned the 1877, and now they says that checks are going to be due on the first. And on the 16th, no matter of a weekend or not, because a lot of people thought that they were going to get their checks today. So see where I'm coming? From. So right uh, now, checks are not in. Are bank's going to be open tomorrow.
1: My bank is. I think most Your banks bank- are open on Saturday. Not oh, on well, Sunday,
13: that's though. That's not so bad. though. but uh, even yeah, no, no, not on Sunday. Yes, because I'm noticing now on the calendars, Saturday used to be red and yellow used to be red. Now it's only Sunday that's red. So, what is it, a six day work, six work days now?
1: Well, I can't speak for every bank because I'm not familiar, but I know the bank that I use is open on Saturday.
13: Yes, because um, if we're going to be paid on the first, if it's on a weekend or not, that's an uh, extra four months, an extra four months in a year that everybody will be getting their check on the weekend.
1: Okay, and so the concern there is that you won't be able to cash it if you get it on a Sunday immediately? Uh,
13: well, you wouldn't be able to pay your light bill.
1: You could pay it the next day, on a Monday, right?
13: And rent like like right now, I'm spo- uh, I should have my rent paid today, and now I'm not going to be able to do it until tomorrow. I mean, they're not they're not open tomorrow, so now I got to wait till a Monday.
2: <laughs> Who's not <laughs> open I'm tomorrow?
13: From. The landlord. They're not open Saturdays. I'm right, sure. so I had to phone. I had to phone him and tell him, "Well, uh, checks ain't in today, so like so I, I said, you're going to have to wait till Monday because they're not open uh, tomorrow or Sunday, right?"
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, like if if I was due some money tomorrow, uh, I'd make myself available to take the money. <clears throat> That's just me.
13: Yes, I was just wondering when did this change come in because I really don't know. No, I mean, yeah, uh, that's the thing. See, government gives you a lot of questions, a lot of stuff, but no, no answers. Because I tried to phone my worker, and their number is disconnected. They don't want to get. Uh, they don't want to be contacted.
1: I can find out. I mean, that should be no problem for me to find out when the date change uh, took place. I, it might be a little bit more difficult to find out why it did, but I can find out when it did. No problem. That would be great, sir. No problem at all.
13: Uh, thank you very much, and I'll be listening to check see uh, if anybody
1: else got any comments on it. I appreciate the time, Jason. Thanks a lot. You, uh, you have a great day, bud. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, there's another concern. Just let me get back into this. Uh, these messages that I received earlier today, and there was uh, some other concerns about checks. What was going on here? People are getting their social services check and there is some monies being taken back out of it, and there's some thought it might have to do with collection of money where people the weren't eligible for the CERB, and that's how it's being clawed back. Is that what's going on? So if you know how I can fill in that blank for this particular listener, we'll be happy to do exactly that. Uh, let's have beaten hold on here because I don't want to shortchange. I've only got about a minute and a half. So uh, a couple of things that we didn't get to off the top, and of course, in the past week we have had a provincial budget uh, of just about 10 billion dollars and a federal budget almost 500 billion dollars and there's still lots of details we haven't been able to figure out one of the problems certainly on the provincial front we're trying to get some additional details and timelines and all the rest of it is that as soon as the budget was tabled then the following week this week is constituency week so you know sometimes Whether or not, I think it's highly debatable whether or not question period is very helpful and an enjoyable watch because it's not. But at least we might have had the opportunity for some of those discussions to take place inside the legislature. And so consequently, we could try to digest the information or disseminate it and try to figure out the answers to some of your questions about, okay, it's fine to tell me that this is happening, but when is this happening? Those are excellent questions because there is some information. You can get a pretty detailed breakdown on stuff like inside what is the really core document coming from Government on Budget Day, which is the estimates. The budget speech is, of course, a speech. Uh, the other book that they give you out about the economy are some high-level breakdowns of different matters. And, of course, the, the bullet point uh, uh, pamphlet that we get is pretty much that. It's just very cut and dry, this amount of money for this purpose. Not exactly the thought process behind it, how detailed or targeted it is, or when it's going to happen, or whether it requires legislative amendments or what have you. So... The People are asking me tons of questions about different facets of the budget. We're trying to get to the bottom of it as best we can. So let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Beaton wants to talk about a car loan, and then there's going to be plenty of time to speak with you. The topic is up to you. Do not go away.
2: Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
0: This is Open Line on VOCM.
1: Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Beaton. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm oh, doing okay, Beaton. How about you?
14: Oh, uh, I'm still having the battle, boy, with, with the car that I got and with the bank. And uh, I, I, I had a call, and I was on the way to Grand Wednesday with the went to the hospital. And I had a call from the uh, from the bank, and he wants to know why I'm trying to get away from paying for the car. And I said, I'm not trying to get away from paying for the car. Well. Yeah, you told me that you're not gonna pay seven hundred dollars a month? I said, Yeah. But I said I also told you that I just can't afford the seven hundred dollars a month. I wanted you to cut the payments down to four hundred a month that I where I could afford to pay for it. I mean, I'm only getting a little a little over eleven hundred dollars a month coming in. Now my rent is six fifty, my life is two hundred, so that's that's eight hundred and fifty dollars or so. When am I gonna come up with seven hundred dollars for a monthly payment? Understood. You know. And they're calling me a lawyer. They're saying, you know, that I, I, I'm lying with this. And then they looked up and said, why don't you take the car to a dealership and trade it in on something cheaper and lower your monthly payments? So I said, OK. I said, it don't sound sensible to me what you're talking about, but it's just, to me It's just sounds stupid. So I went to the dealership and the dealership did to me. He said, we can't lower your monthly payments for you. The bank's going to do it. So he said, "We give you say a uh, uh, twenty thousand, and you owe thirty five on your car, uh, and and we get to carry that's twenty thousand. We get to carry the remainder over on that payment. Then you're right back to 700000 dollars money again."
1: Okay, so just so I understand, Beaton, what is the downside to trading it in for a less expensive model to control the payments? I'm sorry.
14: That's what they're saying. Yeah, if if I trade it in on something like ten or fifteen thousand. That it would cut my monthly payments down below seven hundred a month. So, and I said, I said to him, I said that don't make sense. I said if you know if I trade the on something else, and the car is is more than what I'm going to get for it, I said then they get to carry the remainder over on the other car that I'm getting. I said that's going to still drive my monthly payments up. How is it going to reduce my monthly
1: payments? It don't make to me. It doesn't make sense. Well, I do think it's worthwhile sitting down with someone at the dealership and just, you know, pick a couple of I different did. cars, get a trade right. value assessed on the vehicle that you're driving, see if there is a deal to be made that can see a payment that's much more affordable for you and your family. I would do at least that much because I know I you're did, in a bond.
14: I, I did, Patty, I did. I did it Tuesday, I did it Wednesday in Grand Falls to a dealership in Grand Falls. And I owes, they're saying I owe 39000 on the car and the dealership is on a trade-in they're only, to give me, they're only going to give me eighteen thousand five
1: hundred. Okay, so you're upside down. Okay.
14: So, <laughs> I'm still in the same bind. She said you're still at seven hundred dollars a month payment. So they said uh, there's two dealerships told me that they said the only ones that can reduce your payments is is uh, the bank. I um, mean they're they're treating me like a, like a stupid dummy, like uh, you know that I don't know what I'm talking about, and they're trying to say now that I'm trying to get away from paying for it, which is is is, is all lies. I, I I need the car, I need a bad car, but I, I
1: just can't pay $700 a month at $1,100 a month. Totally understand. It's, I, and again, I struggle with why the bank has been so obstinate with you, because as a customer, it's in their best interest that your payments are manageable for you to make. They don't need defaults them. on loans, so I just don't know why they can't work with you. This I've always been at a loss on that one.
14: Well, I told him exactly the same thing. I said, "Look, I said, by you reducing my monthly payments and extending my years to pay the car off, you're 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 going to benefit more than I'm going to benefit because you're going to get more interest from me. So that's why you're you're in money. You're not you know you're not losing money. You're gaining money. I'm the one who's losing." So, no, I can't. You know, I mean, like I said, I mean, the, the, the last two days, now I had a call now just before I called you there, and they're saying the same thing, you know, like, you know, you're trying to get away from paying the payments. You're telling us you're not paying the 700 a month. So you're trying to get away from paying the car. I said, no, I'm not trying to get away from paying the car. I want to get my payments reduced so I can keep the car. I said, I got a wife right now. I said, Wednesday, you now we went to Grandpa. Now she's be found out there's,
13: there's more cancer. So, oh, no.
14: Yeah, so you know, I mean, the, I mean, I'm caught between a rock and a an hard spot, and I don't know who to talk to or, or you know, or which way to turn. Or, you know, I'm not, I'm not a millionaire. I, I want to get, like I said, eleven hundred a month coming in. So how can I pay six fifty a month for rent and seven hundred a month for for
1: vehicle? Beaton, I seem to remember the last time we spoke, someone contacted us and wanted your contact information. They were going to try to help out. Did anyone reach out to you?
14: i was talking to a gentleman from in around st john's yeah. he, well he's not a he's not a, a liar or nothing like that he was just a gentleman that was concerned about what i was going through yeah. uh, and that man was good enough to go into his bank account and take out 500 dollars from my bank account to try to help me keep the payment going yeah
1: good on that console whoever that was you know yes. there's Sometimes when our debt gets away from us, regardless of what it is we're talking about, sometimes there's some savings to be found if you go through a consolidation process. Have you entertained that idea?
14: I did, I did, yeah. I already went through that for one thing, right? But I told him, I said, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm giving you two weeks to come and take the car out of my driveway. And I said, if you kept it up, I said, I'll go and claim bankruptcy and you won't get nothing from me.
1: Which is bad for you, bad for them. It, it's just, you yeah, know... He, he, he,
14: Yes, I know it's bad for me because it's going to give me bad credit. But, but you know, which way do I turn? You know, I either take—I'm going to take bad credit, or I'm going to be uh, answering my phone twenty-four-seven every day.
1: Yeah, and I think you mentioned last time, bad credit is the least of your worries at this stage. I
14: yeah, well, well, my wife is more important to me now than bad credit.
1: Yeah, no question, and obviously so. Uh, I appreciate no. the time. Beaton. if anyone comes up with any decent ideas that we can pass along, or any additional support, whatever happens. We're happy yeah. to pass it along to you.
14: Well, my phone number is 427-9029.
1: Appreciate the time, Beaton. Good luck, sir. Okay. I'm sorry Thank to hear you, about Harry. your wife's uh, additional diagnosis. Tell her hello okay. for me and get well. I will, right, well, my friend. Thank you very much. Take care, Beaton. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's go to line number one. Tony, you're on the air. Hi, hey, this morning, Patty. Not too bad, I suppose. You? All good,
15: thanks. Uh, I'll just... I heard Tom Oliver on there this morning. I heard him on a couple of months ago uh, on the OCM in the afternoon saying they were asking about the offers you were making to try to recruit people, the healthcare workers. And he was saying that they had to match the same as everywhere else because in order to get them, Because got the shortage everywhere. But yet we got people here, like we have eight radiation therapists who quit in nine months and they're getting $10 less an hour. We got nurses here. We got 1,200 casual nurses. We got, and yet we got they want to hire 600 full-time nurses, and pay them equal amount as we're getting anywhere else, or working conditions. But yet we're paying. We got nurses that we are gotten that we're forcing to work double and triple overtime. It doesn't make sense. Like the money that they're wasting, and yet they're traveling around the world trying to recruit doctors So, so what's
1: to, what's the point uh, you're making here, Tony? Sorry.
15: Well, Tom was on saying they had to pay the people uh, in order to get healthcare workers here They have to pay them the same as they're offering everywhere else. But yet we got our own healthcare care workers. We had them here. We didn't have to recruit a lot of them, because, but yet they, we got radiation therapists who eight quit nine months. They were getting $10 less an hour. So why don't you pay them the same as we're getting everywhere else? Why don't you make offers to our radiation or our respiratory therapist who is Graduating this year, got up to December, January, they never got an offer, but they allowed people to come in from other provinces and make them offers.
1: Yeah, Nova Scotia came knocking. I don't know how yeah. you keep people from other provinces making offers though because we're doing the same thing
15: but 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 meanwhile, we're not making offers to our own, like the people that' graduating we're not making many offers, like they never made an offer to these respiratory therapists. So, I mean, that doesn't make even make so, sense. So,
1: based on what? Like, where does this information come from? Because sometimes I hear people... This was on I the
15: news. S- this was on the, on the NTV News. Okay. And it was on,
1: the BOS, and it was on uh, I think it was on VOCN as well. Look, I... Anyway, I think we have to do a better job when the bumps hit the seats in any uh, school that's training a healthcare professional. So, constant contact with opportunities that will be in front of them to work here in this province, making sure that the pay is going to be competitive. But if... You know, like, for instance, someone made this comment once, and I think they were right, is that they were over at the convocation ceremonies at the Arts and Culture Center, and they wondered to themselves as they saw the med school graduates walk across the stage, how many of them have had a one-on-one conversation with a recruiter from any health authority here in this province to talk about opportunities in one part of the province or another, make them job offers, because there's nothing quite like the recent trainees and graduates as the captive audience that we have, and we have to ensure that the most of them that we can keep work here. I mean, no one disputes that point.
15: Yeah, and but yet the government is not making them any offers. Like, we've had doctors graduate here and never even got an offer from government. Now they're working elsewhere. I mean, we're losing our own uh, because they won't make them offers or they don't treat them well. Like we can't keep surgeons. But yet, and a surgeon their surgery is canceled every single day. And sometimes the same person getting trained four times. Uh, getting their surgery cancelled. Well, so. that's
1: that's more about you beds know. than it is about surgeons. We've got but the surgeons, yet, we have the operating it, it, theater capacity, we don't have a bed for recovery.
15: And yet, uh, Tom was on this morning saying that we're going to send surgeons now when we basically we turned our healthcare into one, we can send surgeries elsewhere. We don't even have enough to keep St. John's going. So, I mean, to it, me. It's, it's not that,
1: it's the, it's the availability of beds is the largest drive in these uh, surgical postponements.
15: I mean, to me, every day there's, there, there's surgeries canceled. So to me, they don't listen to doctors when they give them result, or the, the solutions to health care, but yet they won't, and doctors are not allowed to speak out, but yet uh, they'll go around saying they're going to make an offer of this one and that one.
1: But doctors do thinking. speak out.
15: But uh, some of them do, some of them, but they're not allowed. You've got the hammer comes down on them. But at the same time, I mean, you got you do one offer, and they're ball offers. It makes it basically... Makes them these, these, so disvalued. I mean, you had doctors speaking out, saying this.
1: What all offers? We just started paying doctors more than we've ever paid doctors.
15: But we're still below the average rate. Like uh, I remember, there last year was a doctor spoke out and said, in order for him to come home, he had to take a forty to sixty percent cut. He was up in BC, and uh, so I mean, with no incentives, he was in on the news on that. I mean, this is what they're doing. they and they're taking away people's. Right, uh, basically, there's incentives that they have, and now they're offering two hundred thousand dollars out in Bonavista for a good a couple of people. What about after a couple of years is up? And they're still with the salaries. I mean, we're still low. some of that.
1: We're down some of that we're, decreased pay issue. I think the well, not don't take it from me. Take it from the uh, NLMA. Some of that was based on the antiquated fee-for-service model versus what they were looking for for the. Uh, blended capitation. And I, I don't know 100% how it works, but the NLMA seems to be pleased enough with the adjustments that have been made to pay and certainly the amount of money floating around for trying to recruit and retain healthcare professionals. I'm not so sure what else can be in that pot because it seems like there's an awful lot.
15: Well, to me, you should be offering the people here. I mean, when you're paying... When yes, you're, Tony, you,
1: I heard that part.
15: Yeah, because, I mean, you're paying them $10 less, so I'd like to know uh, if you're going to, uh, say, some offer somebody elsewhere the same money as we're getting everywhere else. Why can't they offer the people that we got here the same money? In order to Fair keep enough. them, then we wouldn't have you going all over the world trying to recruit people because we'd have them here.
1: Appreciate like the time, person.
15: Tony. I mean, the nurse, yeah, I'll finish off by saying the nurses' union was on there a few months ago. Since we got the nurses here, we get this, all they have to do is hire 600 full-time nurses, and we save money. So we wouldn't have be forcing people in the hospital to work in tri- double and triple overtime, and they wouldn't be quitting so I mean, this is what the problem is right now. The government is not doing their job.
1: I'm not so it, sure everything is you know. as simple as portrayed. But
15: anyway. Well, sometimes it is. But sometimes they make them look worse uh, than it is, and they are trying to basically hide it. I mean, we got thousands, thousands okay. of doctors and nurses here coming from uh, elsewhere immigrants, and they can't get jobs in Canada because I'm not sure what that, that means. Their, but you get to travel around. You get to travel around the same all countries trying to recruit doctors. It doesn't make sense what they're saying. I was in the House of Commons the other day about how so many doctors and nurses here that can't get jobs at at the profession, but yet they're traveling around other countries, so they're saying, trying to recruit them. So
1: what does the House But at the exact same time, they're talking about uh, trying to attract healthcare professionals in jurisdictions where the accreditation and the caliber of schools are similar to Canada, and at the exact same time, trying to talk about the efficient transfer of licenses and accreditation so that they can get down to it. I mean, we've heard from the College of Physicians and Surgeons working with the government and the NLMA to try to satisfy those things because there's three or four different moving parts inside recruiting abroad, and you have to do them all concurrently. There's no sense just doing one at one time and then having someone sit around. I think there's a bigger issue there about Canadians who have trained abroad that can't get a residency. So anyway, uh, last break of the morning, Tony.
2: I appreciate the time this morning.
1: All right. Thanks, Thanks, Tony. Take care. Bye-bye. Last break of the morning, last break of the week. Don't go away.
2: Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com.
1: This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Liberal Member of Parliament elected in and serving the folks of St. John's South Mount Pearl. He's the Minister of Labor. That's Seamus O'Regan. Minister O'Regan, you're on the air.
16: Good morning, Patty.
1: Good morning to you. Where are we starting? Because I have on. questions. I'll go for it. I always begin with you. Okay. So, you know, inside a $491 billion budget, a $40, 000, a $40 billion deficit, $10 billion more than mm. was forecasted, a $50, yeah. $50 billion per year to service debt, the government doesn't seem quite as bullish or optimistic on the economy as they did in the mini-fall budget. You know, projecting growth at 0.3%, is it fair in your estimation to characterize your government's position on the economy as less bullish than it was in the fall?
16: Well, we're gearing enough. We're just, we're, you know, we want to make sure that we're prepared. Not sure how this year is going to go. And A lot of it, you know, is based on global events and what's happening. Um, the good news is we're still leading the G seven country in ec- economic growth. We are still leading G seven countries on a deficit, on having the lowest deficit, the lowest at the GDP ratio. That's important stuff because listen, I get you know a lot of people say to me, "Boy, it's time to start raining in the money," and then you know I get other people coming to my constituency office we still need money right because of cost of living and because of affordability issues it's not easy to hit that sweet spot i think the, the finance minister she's pretty swift and I think that you know, what she tried to do here was restrain you know, spending in many areas, but make sure that we targeted at the people who really need it um, you know, over these upcoming few months. We're still very bullish about getting through this, to be honest with you. If there is a slowdown in the economy this year, we really be- believe that the fundamentals are in place, that we will have a strong recovery. And-, and frankly, I don't think that we've seen a situation like this, Patty. And it's interesting from my vantage point as labor minister. We have the highest nationally, the highest employment rate in our history, the lowest unemployment rate in our history. And in fact, labor is a huge challenge for us. We don't have enough people in the workforce. We have more jobs than people, particularly in skilled labor. So how does that affect the cover recovery? Because when this has happened before, you know, with the baby boom generation. You know, flooding the market with labor it's been different right you you're you trying to affect the economy there's high unemployment with high interest rates. boy, I tell you, people are stubbornly and employers bless them are stubbornly uh keeping people at work uh so the economy's not doomed badly right now we're bracing ourselves in case globally things get worse. we've got a war in europe and you know, other a lot of other variables happening around the world. We're just we're, we're making sure we get things right and trying to focus where we stand on the people who really need
1: it. Well, let's use some of the numbers that Minister Freeland uses. You know, uh, sure. economic recovery, one hundred three percent pre-pandemic. Job recovery, one hundred twenty-six percent pre-pandemic. Mm-hmm. Inside the job numbers, I do find them somewhat misleading. Because what it does not factor in is the number of people who have left the labor, the labor market and not, no longer looking for a job. Also, mm-hmm. it sort of plays down the fact that somewhere in the neighborhood of 86% of those jobs have been created in the public sector, as opposed to government's prime role of creating an atmosphere where the private sector can create jobs versus simply hire more people in the public sector. I find the numbers misleading. Do you follow along my thoughts on that? And shouldn't we not include all of those factors in applauding ourselves for job recovery? 86% of job recovery came from the public sector? The number that I saw was when we had the uh, low unemployment numbers last go around and inside the numbers of jobs created since the pandemic and the job recovery timeframe, whatever the minister is using, the number that was offered was that somewhere in the 80s, a percent were jobs that were created in the public sector. Do you have well, a number that, I, that differs no, from that? No, I'd,
16: I'd have to dig into that, but that doesn't ring true to me. I can tell you that. I mean, we've regardless... Uh, we got a labor shortage. I mean, I'm dealing with it every day. I can tell you that. That's from small businesses. That's from large businesses. We do not have enough people out. The people are working. The, the area where people, I think, are are suffering, and I hear it from my husband all the time. Who, you know, used to run in a tear and the Merchant Tavern and Fogo Island Inn. I mean, you know, is hospitality. Uh, we're a lot of people in the hospitality and tourism industries did not return there. We we're about 20% are about twenty percent underemployed or uh, with positions to fill in the hospitality industry, they're still hurting. That's, that, I know, is a particular issue. But overall, we have huge labour Uh That is my biggest challenge as labour minister. Uh,
1: and I just very quickly wanted to make sure I was on the right track because I'm not in the business of, of bogus information. This from the Financial no. Post. Public sector accounts for 86% of new jobs since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in Canada. And this was from uh, November last year.
16: I'll get back to you on that. That is That does not ring true to me. We have not increased the, the bureaucracy or new jobs anyway by 86%. I can tell you that. What we have seen is a very strong recovery in the private sector. That's for sure. I mean, geez, we haven't been hiring that many people pre uh, during pandemic or post.
1: How should so we I'm evaluate? Not sure
16: where that comes from, but I will get back to you on that. Okay, I
1: appreciate it. You know, when we do comparatives across the G7 can be helpful, but can also be... I think wrapped up in, you know, the comparative for comparative sake versus what's actually happening for individual Canadians or families in this country. Like, I mean, net net debt to GDP, I think is a helpful measure. And, you know, we'll do the comparisons, whether it be inflation rates or that one of net debt to GDP in this country, about 1.4%. The U.S. and the U.K., which I think are the two best comparables, they're both in the fives. So how do we actually use that number to give thumbs up or thumbs down to the performance of the Liberal government? The, the liberal so, minority parliament.
16: Yeah, it's it's been it's been a guidepost for us, you know, uh, both for this liberal government and the previous, you know, Martin and Crescent liberal governments. Um we've always used the debt to GDP ratio to figure out where we are because, you know, we uh, we, we didn't want to be doctrinaire about, you know, the inability to spend when you need to spend. So you kind of measure it and, and 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 most banks look at that too. The real I think the really important ranking and the one that matters, of course, is what's your credit rating. And for us it's AAA. It's it's really us um, the States, um, Germany, Australia, there are very few in the world that have a triple A credit rating. In other words, your debt is more than serviceable. And what that means, as anybody can appreciate if you've got a good credit rating score, is low, low, lower interest rates. Um, that saves the government money to spend on things that we need to spend on. You know, and and we know that and we feel that in the provincial government. When we got the $2.5 billion for the Atlantic Accord renewal about four years ago, that immediately had effect on the credit rating of the province because it was a guaranteed source of considerable revenue. So that's what matters, and I think that's what should matter to people when we talk about all this gobbledygook, Patty, is that if we've got a AAA credit rating, what it means is that we have – more money to spend on, on what people need and less on interest.
1: Uh, it just dinged at 12 o'clock noon. If you possibly have time early next week to come back, because I have a pretty long list of concerns that I'd like to speak with you about.
16: <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're hitting the wall. No problem. I'll call you back next week.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you, Minister. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Minister of Labor, Shamus O'Regan. We are out of time. Good show today and all week. Big thanks to all hands who support the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy weekend. Talk Monday. Bye-bye.